Listen to me. Look at me. You're going to be okay. Do you understand me? But you have to sit absolutely still. Hey, you! Come here! I need you to get this woman away from these fumes. Take her over there. Stay with her. If her contractions occur any closer than three minutes apart, call out for me. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Okay. Hey! What's your name? Jack! to go back down the hatch it's the lost rewatch podcast here on post show recaps hello everybody i am josh wiggler and joining me on the journey to broadcast our thoughts about lost for the next 16 years and five months at least it's my good friend and co-host mike bloom or should i say my co-pilot mike bloom i don't know if you want to say that considering the co-pilot still remains a mystery after all these years i'm so excited josh the day has finally arrived i got everything laid out my five pens my raw sea urchin and a nice big old festering back wound i'm ready to get into this yes i sent mike off to get me a pen and he has returned with so many pens that we will have enough writing utensils to last us through the entirety of down the hatch a new podcast here on post show recaps this is uh technically episode three of down the hatch but it is the biggie this is this is this is the real deal we are hopping down the hatch with our recap of the two-part pilot uh the very very first episode slash episodes ever of lost and if you had not heard the announcement already i would first say go back and listen to the first episode of down the hatch i thought that mike and i did an admirable job establishing our love for lost and our intentions of what we are doing here with this podcast but as a quick reset for those who did not listen to that podcast and just want to get into the business of the rewatch proper this is down the hatch it is a spoiler filled rewatch podcast uh, talking about lost discussing each episode weekly by the numbers 42 minutes minimum each episode and 108 minutes maximum or else there are consequences. But not this week, Mike Bloom. Yeah, we have been spared this time around. Uh, the the disaster monster approached us, sniffed us down a little bit, and then receded back into the dark territory. So we are absolved of any guilt for right now, but we are on thin ice here because moving forward, if we get past that 108-minute mark, something will occur and it might be nasty. It might be nasty. It'll almost certainly be nasty. Uh, yes. Exceeding 108 minutes of podcasting about Lost on a given week is normally a no-no for us, though it benefits <laughs> you, the listener, if you are enjoying Mike and I talking about Lost. Uh, but we have established that for multi-part episodes, special episodes of Down the Hatch, the rules do not apply. There is just no way that we are talking about the series premiere of Lost with having to worry about a time limit. It's 
you know, it's just not going to happen. We, we have no idea what we are going to do here and how long we are going to go. Uh, so we are just going to go as long as the conversation takes us. Time or be damned. Yeah, exactly. That being said, we hope you join us along the ride here, and hopefully it does not go the way that poor Oceanic Flight A15 ends up going. Hopefully you don't split away from us, get dragged out uh, behind any sort of very impressive uh, holes in your plane. If you want to uh, reach out to us in any way, provide feedback or questions or anything about that, we're going to get into our feedback section later. Obviously, you can reach out to Down the Hatch at postshowrecaps.com, plus our respective Twitter feeds. Josh is at Round Howard. I'm at M. Mike Bloom type. Of course, we have at postshowrecaps. Because this is a spoiler-filled you know, show, Josh and I are totally amenable to entertaining any conversations about any part of loss. So no matter what the episode is, if you're three seasons ahead of us in your rewatch, let us know your thoughts. This is a, this is a show that is an all-encompassing in so many ways, so we're happy to talk about it in any perspective. But Josh... Super breaking news. As of about, like, 12 hours ago, we finally have a dedicated feed specific to Down the Hatch for all you Lost-specific fans out there. Yes, this was something that we were hoping to get up uh, as soon as the announcement podcast. It took a little while, but it is here. The Lost Down the Hatch specific feed is available for you to subscribe to. Search for it on your podcast app of choice. Uh, Please subscribe, rate, Review, we've already gotten really very kind, uh, too kind uh, feedback. Extremely kind. It's, it's been great. We'll get into a little bit of that later on in the episode. There's a lot of straight business that we want to get into and then talking about the episode first. Uh, but the, to say that the response has been overwhelming is an understatement. Um, but we would, we would love for you to be along for the journey. If you subscribe to the Down the Hatch feed, that is the surefire guaranteed way that you are not going to miss a single episode of Down the Hatch, which, as we have said, in the past, and we will reiterate here, we'll be dropping, we are aiming to drop these episodes on Fridays, uh, so get your questions in each week by, I would say, no later than Wednesday nights. We are trying to record these on Thursdays, and as Mike has mentioned, plenty of ways to get that feedback to us. It can be about the full series. Uh, ideally, something that ties back to the episode would be great, but not required. Uh, we, will, we will talk about whatever comes our way, as long as it is fun, uh, as long as it is compelling, uh, we will we will get into it uh and we we may not be able to get into everything because we have just an, an overflow of feedback already uh, which is it's a great problem to have Mike. absolutely um, yeah it's a real first island problem yes definitely definitely a first island problem uh speaking of feedback we have a dedicated feedback section that we're going to get to in a little while um but i think just right off the jump There are a couple of questions. There are two questions in specific that Mike and I have both been pelted with numerous times by numerous different people that we just want to address really quickly right off the the jump here just to establish it. The first one, Mike... uh, where do you watch Lost is, is a very, very fair question yeah, we that really, has been asked. We buried the lead along with Nikki and Paulo here. I think that that was something that we, t- when our, somehow in our nearly two-hour podcast, we were so excited about debuting this, this new podcast that we completely glossed over how our faithful listeners can actually follow along the journey with us. Yes. All right. So we have compiled uh, ways that you can watch Lost if you are excited about revisiting this series and watching along 
with the podcast. In the United States, if you subscribe to Hulu, uh, Lost comes with your Hulu subscription. You can also buy it on Amazon Prime. Uh, that's one way. Uh, that's what I've done. Uh, and there's a lot of the, the great X-ray uh, bonus facts that come with watching Lost on Amazon. But if you're a Hulu subscriber, uh, you will just get it as part of your subscription. In Canada and Europe, if you uh, subscribe to Amazon Prime, you can get Lost that way. Apparently, there's a streaming service in Australia called Stan. Uh, do it's, we, just do one, we... it's just one guy say like, all right, I think uh, yeah. make Lost available today. Yeah, just like how Claire is the lone Australian on the Lost uh, in the Lost cast. Uh, Stan is the lone streamer in Australia. No, I know nothing about Stan, but if you're from Australia, perhaps you do, and apparently you can you can watch Lost that way. Uh, ben Martell, the great Ben behind the curtain, who helps us here on Down the Hatch, notes uh, from his homeland of New Zealand. He says. Do you guys have a DVD DVD player you could use? Because uh, you want to you want to go to the DVD libraries to to find your lost apparently if you if you live in New Zealand. But we have heard from a bunch of people who are going back through their DVD collections and yeah. they're pulling out old lost DVDs. Some people who've like gone on eBay to purchase lost DVD sets, uh, which is amazing. However, you're going to watch Lost. Those are, those are some of the ways that you can do it. I believe in you. I believe you are resourceful enough to find this show. Uh, I, I I have faith in you. Much as uh, John Locke has faith in this island. Yeah, and you know, I will say, actually speaking on the concept of libraries, if you are someone who you know doesn't have Hulu or Amazon Prime and you still want to be able to watch Lost, I think a great idea would be you know check out your local public library. Usually they have a, a repository of DVDs, a good amount of TV one. So maybe there's a good chance that you know 15 years after the fact, your Lost D- season one DVDs are plentiful. So I'd be should you know before you want to invest a lot of coin into doing this be sure to check out those resources as well you can always you know contact any former lost fanatic friends you might have to see if they still have the dvds there's a wealth of resources you can use but i hope that you all no matter what method of viewing you're able to utilize or able to follow us along with the journey uh because i can already tell from the first week and the number of screenshots people have sent us of their respective watch alongs that this is going to be a very very fun process all right. So another question that Mike and I have been hit with a lot, even though I feel like we've been we've been pretty front and center about it in the podcast already, uh, it's possible that the message just has not yet landed. The question is some variation of: Is Down the Hatch going to be safe to listen to if this is my first time through Lost? Uh, Mike, the answer is a big fat no. Uh, it is <laughs> it is not safe if you have uh, only if you've never watched Lost before, unless you don't care about spoilers. But just in case that message is not clear already, major spoilers are coming. Major spoilers are coming. Lots of spoilers are coming. There's some massive spoilers coming. Major spoilers are coming. All the spoilers are coming. So many spoilers are coming. Nothing but spoilers are coming. Major spoilers are coming. An excess of spoilers coming. You know that there's spoilers coming. All the spoilers are coming now. We'll see you in another podcast, brother. Yeah. Uh, did the late John Lennon make an appearance there at the end? Oh my god, it was Alex Giacchino's uh, great <laughs> Desmond Hume impression. Uh, and I love the fact that it's sort of like a narrative within itself in that the sound effects used in the spoiler song are a spoiler in itself, as is this entire podcast, Dave. So really, we have like fully entrenched ourselves in the fact that this is 
spoiler filled. As Josh said, I think we're we're gonna you know institute buyer beware from now on. I mean, if you you if you haven't seen Lost before and you want to try to watch the episode and follow along, you certainly can. We'll certainly be spoiling some surprises for you down the line that might ruin it if you don't decide to watch it on your own. I think we talked about this in our first episode, but we're gonna be here for quite some time. We are not. You know, we're we're not going to hate you whatsoever if you just stop the podcast now, watch a bunch of Lost in a row, heck, maybe the entire series because it's just that addictive, and then you'll come back and watch the pilot episode with everything fresh in your mind. We we are not offended one bit in you doing that because this is an all-encompassing story, and we are going to try to wrangle as much of that compass as we can. Yeah, and I think if we do our jobs right, like one of the goals of this is this is like comfort listening. You know, this is this is it, it, the 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 show I view as like comfort food TV in a lot of ways for me, and we want to translate that experience into comfort listening for you on a weekly basis. You could just guarantee, like you you can guarantee that we're going to have some lost podcasting for you every week for the foreseeable future. Uh, it's awesome if you can keep up the pace and and watch along with us and and have the the things that we're talking about fresh in your mind, so that can help generate some great feedback and continue that conversation between us and you. But if you just want to binge Lost, just go and binge Lost and then come back and listen to, to us. We're going to be here for years. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, so that's the big spoiler warning. There's no more spoiler warnings for the rest of the episode. Uh, we will have light spoiler warnings for the next couple of episodes, I'm sure. But they're going to be really light. What about dark and spoiler warnings? They will They will come up. One of the spoiler <laughs> alerts is, is light. light. <laughs> the other is dark. Uh, so we will, we will give a few more of those just as we are getting established here but pretty soon they will die much like Boone who will also die <laughs> yeah, I, let's let's say let's keep the spoiler warnings going until Boone dies that's when yeah, we probably kill off the spoiler warnings yes the spoiler warning dies with Boone uh, maybe with Steve or Scott whichever one of them dies first I still don't even yeah though they will go under the surface much like one of them did <laughs> Yeah, so we'll figure it out at that time. Uh, but that's it. That's 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 all the the business at the top. Let's get into the party. Let's talk about the pilot. Let's get into this episode. Mike Bloom. We're talking about the two part pilot. It aired on September twenty second, two thousand four, and September twenty ninth. 2004, directed by J.J. Abrams. Story credit goes to Jeffrey Lieber, who we've talked about and we will probably not talk about again, uh, and J.J. Abrams. And of course, Damon Lindelof, one of the men who is most prominently uh, associated with Lost alongside Carlton Cuse, who is not going to show up conversationally, I think, for several episodes yet. Uh, This is an episode that centers on Jack Shepard, Charlie Pace, Kate Austin, as we flash back to their experiences of the crash of Oceanic Flight 815, and all sorts of madness ensues. Mike, did you watch this live? Remind me of your origin story with with Lost as far as when Lost first started airing. Yes, so I was, I guess I'm the Carlton Cuse of our pairing because I was a little late to the boat, late to the freighter here on Lost. My first episode was, oddly enough, the aforementioned White Rabbit episode i think it was something along the lines of you know this show was marketed the way it was pitched initially which was castaway meets survivor and as an avowed fan of survivor even back then and it's now nation days i thought okay this is an interesting concept i'm not a huge fan of network drama but let me you know check it out for some reason i don't know why i let four episodes pass me by before uh, my perennial viewing partner my mother and i sat down to watch 
the white rabbit and then from then on you know this was also at a time where network shows did like not necessarily half seasons but they'd air a certain amount until like the holiday break until the winter holidays and then they take a little bit of a break and in that break was when knowing that loss was a huge hot commodity on their hands abc reran the crap out of that first bunch of episodes and that how I, that's how i was able to rewatch you know the first bundle of them Suffice it to say, I was a little confused to what I got dropped into. <laughs> to the point where yeah. there's there's a uh, you know moment in House of the Rising Sun where Jin's going loco, and they're like, Quick, "Get the handcuffs from the marshal!" And I'm like, "Great!" Now there's a character named Marshall who I have to know. <laughs> there's too many names going on in this show. It took me a little while to realize that there was a Marshall and that he had a profound impact on these first three episodes. So and that he was deceased. Yeah, uh, exactly. Deceased. So so luckily it wasn't a name I had to remember much of, but he, since he wasn't on the screen at that point, so yeah, this was you know something I had was not watching in the moment and had to catch up on afterwards uh josh what about you what's your story with the pilot i feel like i've told this story before on other podcasts on the lost lives podcast that we did once upon a time around 2014 for post show recaps again you can go back down that rabbit hole down that hatch if you'd like to hear more of our early takes mike i believe that uh lost lives was the first time you and i ever interacted by the yes way. it was where uh, we did uh our episode rankings but we did it in Looking back, a very weird style where each of us put, like threw an episode onto the ranking. We were building a big signal fire of a podcast, and each threw our it's own. A fun, on. It's a fun podcast. I, I recommend people go back and listen to that one. It's a three-part podcast where Mike and I and Antonio Mazzaro and AJ Mass with uh, a, a radio transmission assist from Joe Garfine uh, ranked every episode of Lost in draft form. Uh, so I, I, I recommend listening to that. If yeah, you, if you and li- check again, light spoiler alert. Uh, pilot, I think it made the top. Top five, I want to say at least top ten. I feel like it did. We'll we'll relitigate that by the end of this episode for sure. Um, for me, I so I, I think that I've said this story before uh, that I I did not watch the first half of the Lost pilot when it aired on September 22nd, 2004. Uh, It was airing during my astronomy lecture. I was a sophomore (laughs) in college, uh, and I was a good student. And I wasn't going to skip class, even though I'd been reading a little bit about Lost. At that time, I was obsessed with 24, and I, I, I was looking, I was, I was into Alias at that point. I loved J.J. Abrams. I was very interested in following whatever work he was, he was going to do next. So Lost was on my radar, but it wasn't something I was watching yet. And then uh, September 29th, 2004, rolls around, and I'm just not really that interested in going to astronomy lecture that night. So I stay in my dorm room, and I turn on Lost, and I watch Lost, and I think maybe I went to two more astronomy lectures for the rest of the semester. Uh, but I, I decided to, to turn my gaze away from the stars and, and onto look the, to the And onto the soon-to-be stars that are developing yes. from this ensemble cast of some relatively, you know, known names, but most, mostly a bunch of, uh, oh, never seen that person before, which we, we touched upon last time as well, and we'll certainly touch upon more in our feedback. Yeah, so I know very little about uh, about the, the stars in the sky, but the constellation that is lost, I could talk about for years, apparently. Uh, so that is that is what we are going to do. We are going to start in on our four stories segment where we are going to be talking about four big picture stories 
coming out of each episode of Lost. And we will begin here, Mike, uh, I think as we want to do for most of these episodes, because there may be people who are listening to the podcast and aren't rewatching Lost and just want to be guided through the emotion and the feeling and the reminders of what was happening on Lost. So we're going to do some some summarizing of the story of the episode here, and we'll, we'll talk you through some of our takeaways as we go. So we will start off with story point number one will be the story of the pilot part one and mike bloom i've been dying to say this for so so long here we go it's a thing we like to say when we're talking about lost here in post show recaps when it comes to the pilot part one mike we open on an eye because yes. of course but the champagne is popping an confetti eye. falling down from the ceiling we've done it we've accomplished the bare minimum on this podcast Josh. we did we did credit to the great antonio in the sky for coining that turn of phrase from uh, the the lost lives lives podcasts once upon a time but yes we open on an eye of course we open on an eye because this show will end on an eye as well and it will end on the very same eye of the man we are gazing upon when Lost begins, it is Jack Shepard, a.k.a. Matthew Fox, waking up in a bamboo forest where he will he will go to sleep again someday, getting roused awake by uh, a very friendly Labrador named Vincent the Dog. Uh, and so, so beautifully, Lost begins very much as it ends. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how this is a show that's very much about, you know, isolated individuals becoming a community, whether they realize how connected they are on the outside or why they've been brought onto the island. You know, this 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 introduction is a very good representation of it. Jack wakes up alone in the middle of the jungle, and it is serene, and it is quiet. There is one dog, you know, licking his hand. It's as if he just, like, woke up on the side of the creek after falling asleep, reading a good book in his idyllic country home. And then he busts onto the beach and all hell bro- breaks loose. Before we get to that, though, I do want to talk about the eye for a hot second uh, because I was looking to some symbology of the eye throughout history, and I found some interesting stuff here. Tell me. Walk me through it. So looking someone in the eye, you know, the eye is obviously a recurring motif in Lost. There's going to be, I would say, at least 20 Time, it's going to become much less recurring after season one, but still a handful of times we're going to have this close-up of a single person's eye opening. And, you know, looking someone in the eye in Western traditions is usually a way of, you know, exuding honesty, right? That we, as Survivor fans, we always hear like, oh, he could look me in the eye and shake my hand and tell me that he was voting my way so I knew he was honest. And I feel like this is a show that's about getting people down to who they are, you know, as humans without maybe outside circumstances. We're going to get into the tabula rasa of it all, I'm sure. And so this is a, a way for us to literally see how much we're going to see into a person's soul, into who they are, depending on outside circumstances, the ways they were raised, the way their, their you know, natural proclivities are. The really interesting thing I found is we're going back to Egyptian mythology, which has sort of like a weird place in Lost Canon, we see hieroglyphs pop up here and there. Uh, but Egyptian mythology has the Eye of Horus, also known as the Eye of Ra. And Josh, the Eye of Horus represents good health, protection, and royal power. Mm. Which sounds a lot like Jack Shepard to me. Now, I don't know if this was purposeful on behalf of you know the, the writers to link so much uh, Egyptian symbolism through the show with this connection right away. But I just thought it's very interesting how important eyes are. And at least in this case of Jack, how the tenets of the eye of Horus are very much linked to what he exudes, especially in this opening scene. 
Yeah, I I love the way that it opens. I also love just retroactively that Jack is waking up like and he doesn't know it yet. He's going to be such a skeptic and such a cynic for so long. But if he just like went the other way and walked like 10 or 15 minutes north instead of towards the beach, he would find like the light of the island. He's basically right there. Uh, He's like he's so close to the magic power source. I think that he needs to be like anointed in order to see it. But he is so, so freaking close. Uh, So, you know, we're not going to revisit the bamboo forest here in this exact spot for a very, very long time. But I think it's just worth taking stock of the fact that we uh, we begin here. We begin on the eye and the eye, as Mike mentions, filled with symbolism that I wonder how how intentional it is probably not too deep at the start of the show but i think it's another great example of some of the things that they could have like just retroactively looked back on and be like oh we've got a lot of great building blocks to play with here and we can really build in a lot of this mythology yeah absolutely Um, and they're already moved in they already hung their shoes up in the trees so josh it looks like they're gonna be here for a while they're gonna be here for a minute so so jack runs out he hits the beach he hears something and of course uh we heard a little bit of it at the top of the podcast. We won't hear any more from the plane crash when we get into our eight sounds, but there it is, the wreckage of Oceanic Flight 815. It is a disaster. Uh, we will talk about some of the, the behind-the-scenes uh, intel on how that all came together later on in the podcast, uh, but for now, it's just such a spectacle. Some amazing character connections that are occurring here as one of Jack's first actions is to team up with John Locke, uh, a guy that he is going to have a very turbulent relationship with. He's the first person, the first meaningful main character that he teams up with here to pull some wreckage uh, off of a man and and save this guy with the help of two other red shirts who we will not get to know. Uh, Jack is going to go on and rescue his pregnant half-sister, who he does not know is his pregnant half-sister, Claire Littleton. Uh, He's going to be assisted as well by Hugo Hurley Reyes, who he does not yet know is the man, the the future new man in charge of the island. The once in future king yes hurley the king uh he's going to be saving the life of a woman who right until this moment was dying from cancer rose uh we will find out more about that in season two and all the while he is going to be trying to shoo away a man who's just trying to help uh but this guy is going to be dead in a couple of weeks anyway uh and then he he goes and he saves claire and hurley from getting flattened out in the opening action blockbuster sequence of lost no actual blockbuster featured uh this is i know that people might you know just be following along with our recap i heavily encourage people if you're not going to watch the entire pilots parts one and two at least watch these first 22 minutes and it's pretty crazy that along with this this is just one segment but the entire first act of Lost is one uninterrupted 22-minute streak. Back in 2004, I feel like that was unprecedented, Josh. I feel like nowadays we're like, oh yeah, Mr. Robot went 35 minutes without a commercial break. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But back before peak TV, when we were just summiting that mountain, climbing up to get a better signal, this just feels so unprecedented and really is a great microcosm of just how Lost changed the game in so many ways. I cannot talk highly enough about this scene. Unlike... The Oceanic 815 wing, this pilot holds up in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. The crashing is it's, it's, it's gripping. And I love the camera work of Jack stumbling out onto the beach. And again, the way the camera's focused on his left side, it's just like, again, a perfect Hawaiian idyllic beach. Seems like he just, you know, took a snooze while going on a vacation and maybe lost the tour group he was with. And then it swerves around and we just see madness 
Shannon is screaming her head off. Michael, of course, is running around yelling, Walt. Charlie is just being a dingus and is just wandering around in a drug adult haze. There is so much... Yeah, he's high. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's very high, and that is a that is a tough uh, situation to have to be dealing with in his state of mind. There's so much great stuff going on here. I mean, the first line is, somebody help me, which I think is just said by a random person. But again, it's a great microcosm of Jack's role, especially in this, where he sort of plays like, we essentially do like one uh, doctoral procedural boiled down to like a five-minute scene where he's literally going through to three different patients and is, you know, triaging them in the moment. I do love that Locke helps the guy whose legs are pinned underneath right. the wreckage. It's like, better you than me, buddy. Uh, unfortunately, R.I.P. Gary Troop, who I would say, you know, so to recap what happens to poor Gary Troop. Uh, well, well, we'll get to that in the feedback section as well. We de- we definitely have that coming up, so we can, we can hold on to that tape. I will say, Bub, before we, we move on here, uh, yes, Boone is not portrayed in a great light here. We're going to get into it. I would say that the pilot does a pretty good job of introducing our core cast of characters in very surface-level characterizations, except maybe Boone. Boone's doing the best he can to resuscitate poor Rose, and Jack just sort of comes in, uh, and Boone's like, you know what, I, I I was doing that, you know, I'm a lifeguard, I'm licensed, and Jack just snidely replies, well, you might want to consider giving that license back. Yeah, you might want to turn he, that back in. And then he gets sent on the, the you know, the dingus's mission of, you know, when you want to get a guy out of the way, tell him to grab pens for a tracheotomy that you're never going to do, so... I do feel a bit bad for Boone here just because Jack treats him with such blatant disregard from the get-go. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Jack is going to get away from the crash. He's got some some stuff to deal with on his own. He's been injured as well. We're just finding that out for the first time, that he's got a, a pretty gnarly wound on his back. He is going to get that wound on his back. Stitch up by the woman he's going to fall in love with and spend his happily ever after life sideways thing that we'll try to make sense of. It's a future problem or a sideways problem, but it's not a now problem. Kate Austin is in the building or on the beach, as it were. They have a little conversation about why Jack is not so afraid. We will uh, we will get to that in in fuller detail in a little bit. I think, Mike, the, the bigger news to talk about is their conversation is going to continue into the night, and they're going to be on the beach together, and they're going to be recapping what they think may have happened to their plane as to why their plane crashed. And this is a detail that I feel like people who have not watched the episode in a long time probably forget and would maybe, if they haven't watched it and they're just listening to us, would think that we're kidding. But Jack makes a plane, like a toy plane out of a, out of a leaf, and just, like, flies it through the sky to, like, illustrate his point of, like, we were here, and then we crashed, and it was bad. And it's like, Jack is the most serious person in the world, and here he is making toy uh, leaf planes, which feels so remarkably out of character for Jack. So many of these characters arrive so fully formed, but this is just one moment that it's just like, this is, this is very much not the Jack Shepard that I've come to know. Maybe this is the bizarro Hermie from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer of like, I want, my dad wanted me to be a doctor, but I wanted to be a toy maker. Right. I just wanted to make toys for all the little children. Yeah, what if that's his secret backstory? That he, he decided to be a doctor because his dad pressured him into it. But what if there's a flashback on the cutting room floor that Jack just wanted to make some toys, man? Yeah, I mean, it would make a lot more sense in the fact that maybe that's why he becomes so, I don't know... Uh, so down and serious is because once Walt gets kidnapped and he's like, well, there goes my chance of any other kid, you know, there goes my prime market here. I have a baby and that's it. On the note of the leaf plane, which I totally forgot about, but I realized you could have a lot of fun rewatching the pilot from the point of view that Jack Shepard 
wants everybody to know that he knows how to fly a plane. <laughs> there are several points over the course of this pilot where, especially when we get to like the transceiver stuff, Jack's like, yeah, I took a couple of flying lessons, so uh, there's going to be this transceiver thing. Uh, he, like, he was like, yeah, I think we we're about 60,000 feet above the ocean, and then the, you know, the, the fuselage broke off around 400 feet below that. I just, I love this idea that, again, maybe he's a... He's a, a wannabe toy maker turned doctor, but on the side, he took those two pilot lessons, and he wants everybody to know about I it. I think it's no surprise that Jack Shepard's a little bit of a know-it-all. So uh, for him to be going around just like uh, you know sneering at people with his pilot knowledge, uh, not not a massive surprise. But we diminish the heroic contributions of one Jack Shepard, uh, not just what he did during the immediate aftermath of the crash, but he and Kate are going to come up with a plan. Uh, she, uh, Kate says, I, I saw some smoke in the valley, and you know it seems like that's probably because it was the, the cockpit, but your mind just starts racing, Mike, retroactively. Who did she see? Did she see, did she see the monster? Did she see some smoke monster action in the valley? Whether or not she saw it before, they're going to hear it now, because just as Jack and Kate decide that they're going to go search for the cockpit in the morning, the monster decides to announce itself, the roaring from the jungle, and it attracts the attention of all of our characters in a really, really amazing way. Yeah, I know we're sort of hitting the major points. We should mention that, especially when we get back to the beach with Jack and Kate, there's a bunch of little interstitial scenes where, you know, you have Saeed taking the lead on the signal fire burning. Charlie sits next to him. We have uh, Hurley getting the the meals ready from the plane. Rose uh, is kissing something that turns out to be Bernard's wedding ring, who gave it to her before he went to the bathroom because he said his fingers were too swollen. And, of course, John Locke, after helping that one guy, has said you know what, I'm good for a break, and is just camped out, not speaking to anybody for a good portion of the episode. Well, he's got a lot going on. He, <laughs> this, been, this, this whole thing has yeah, been a he, very big he's deal. He's like, uh, where, where can I find some oranges? I got a good party trick in mind. Yeah, he's got some, he's got some clown antics up his, uh, up his sleeve. Uh, and we can, we can get to that, basically. Now, there's the flashback, the first flashback that we get, uh, that we played a little bit of in our first episode of Down the Hatch. Jack is going to, to meet Cindy, the flight attendant, who we will see periodically throughout Lost. Uh, we will not see for much of the rest of the first season other than Oceanic flashbacks. Uh, she's going to, uh, as Mike described, I liked the wink-wink free drink uh, that she is going to give Jack an extra bottle and, of booze, and he's going to drink yeah. like dear old dad. He's going to do his and dad And I was going to say, first, first off, little Easter egg here. Uh, apparently, the Russian on Jack's vodka bottle translates to rain, which is very interesting considering the recurring motif. Also, again, here comes uh, Know-It-All Jack. Oh, I believe uh, you might be breaking some FAA regulations by uh, giving me this extra bottle of booze, but you know what? I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah. At least he's he's not as derisive as the marshal by calling her, like, sweetheart or kiddo or anything like that. So g- good on you, Jack, for doing the bare minimum there. Yeah, but Jack Shepard is a notorious party pooper, a party of five pooper, if you will. <laughs> uh, but he, he he likes to rain on everybody's parade uh, in Russian or um, or English or, or whatever you have. Uh, but we get this quick flashback. We get to see a bit of the plane breaking up from Jack's perspective. It's harrowing. It's terrifying. Uh, we get back to the island, and everybody's talking. There's some behind-the-scenes chatter. Rose mentions that she feels like she, she recognizes that sound the monster made from somewhere and then somebody asks her where are you from she says i'm from the 
the Bronx, which is a queer tip of the cap to the fact that the the monster noises evoke uh, a taxi cab, a New York City taxi cab. Mm-hmm. If you have not heard that before, it's very much the case. Um, there's another great moment where you hear Sawyer talking about the island as Monkey Island, which yes. I love. I guess that means he is a, a point-and-click adventure game guy. He's a, he's a, a LucasArts fan, Sawyer, <laughs> referencing the great Monkey Island video yeah. game. I love me some Sam and Max. <laughs> I love Sam and Max. Uh, yeah, it's a shame that he never uh, pulled out a nickname for somebody calling them Guybrush Threepwood at any point, uh, or or trying <laughs> or to do any. Ni- or yeah, like they, I, if they ran into the if he ran into any sort of squid and called it like, oh, we had dealt with Knot of the Tentacle over here, right? Or any of like the swashbuckling, like how appropriate you fight like a cow. Uh, there's just none of that, but uh, it's nice, nice to dream. Not a surprise. Sawyer is a big Star Wars guy, so uh, he does keep it in the Lucas family. Um, the The trek towards the cockpit is going to begin. Before it can begin, Kate is going to need some appropriate footwear. So we get this really tense moment, this really grim moment where she has to find uh, a B-O-D-Y-S. She has to sort through the B-O-D-Y-S, as Hurley describes bodies. Speaking of B-O, I can yeah. only imagine what they're smelling like at this point. Not great. Pretty grim. Uh, Kate is going to lift some shoes off of somebody who is no longer going to need them, and it's a hard thing for her to do, and she's going to look up, and she's going to lock eyes with John Locke, who, as mentioned, is going to do one of the great lost gifts on the Twitterverse uh, that I like to use whenever possible. John Locke, Terry O'Quinn, smiling at Kate with the orange peel in his mouth. Uh, It just makes you wonder what other vaudevillian skills he has up his sleeve that we just don't get to see. Yeah, uh, Don Corleone, he is not. And I do love Evangeline Lilly just gives one look to John Locke that says, oh, so much. Uh, John Locke, suffice it to say, he's a very unlucky man, but maybe that has unfortunately not led him to making great first impressions, as he did here with Kate. Or third, or fourth, or fifth impressions with some <laughs> people. Uh, you know, it really, your mileage really varies when it comes to John Locke. So the mileage begins for Jack and Kate. They recruit Charlie. Charlie decides, or he really volunteers, I want to come with. Uh, we we come to find out, and of course, having watched the show already, we know that Charlie's reason for joining the trek is he wants to to get his drugs, his precious drugs uh, that are uh, that he left in the cockpit of the plane as he was in the bathroom in first class. Uh, he is very excitedly telling Kate that he is Drive Shaft, like you wouldn't have met me before, but I am familiar, and that's because of the bass player in Drive Shaft. Did backing vocals on track three is a very big deal. Yeah, and also Vincent this entire time is meeping. From a bush, which, uh, you know, we can definitely talk about Vincent's motives. I know that we don't see too much of him. I think we get his point of view in one of, like, the lost missing pieces webisodes. But I do do wonder if he's lingering in the jungle because he might not want to go back to his owner and his owner's father's situation. I feel like he's just lingering because he's a huge Driveshaft fan. Oh my god, that's the bass player from Driveshaft. I need to I need him to give him my autograph. Arf, 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 arf. Yeah, he's a big <laughs> Yeah, do- Dog Shaft is really the best cover band yeah. in New York. Yeah, you arf everybody is his favorite <laughs> favorite song for sure. And then of course when they do the diaper commercial, you arf every puppies. <laughs> you arf every puppy. 
puppies. Oh, please, somebody remember to make that parody when we get closer to the time. Don't waste it now. It'll be so much funnier when we get to you all, every puppies in season two. Fire plus water. Put it in the calendar. Put it in the books. It starts raining. Not raining dogs. It starts raining actual rain. It's a sudden downpour. It's end of the world type of weather that everybody is seeking shelter. And this is one of the fun things about early lost is like watching the camps come together and everybody's like still mm-hmm. scrounging for supplies. Um, even though the characters, many of them feel like they are fully formed and fully realized right from the get go. They feel like very lived in human beings. Uh, the, the environment is not for them. You know, they have to, they have to figure out where they are and what they're going to do. So they're like hiding under tarps. They're, they're hiding under the wing. They just haven't figured it out yet. Uh, meanwhile, John Locke loves the rain. He's oh, so happy. Like- he pulls a Natasha Benningfield and feels the rain on his skin. And it's glorious. It's great. Uh, we go from that. We, we hear the monster. We see the monster once again. Everyone's like, hey, something's going on. Uh, the, the trees are moving and something is clearly heading towards the, the cockpit. And honestly, for the first time ever, Mike, with the fact that the monster seems like it was just like on the edge of the woods since like last night and into this day it's made me wonder for the first time ever since we know that the monster can shapeshift we know that the monster has agency we know that the monster is somebody who can uh, con people he can con sawyer so he can con just about anybody we know that ethan rom is going to infiltrate the group at some point in time but it just it has me like fanficking the deleted scene where the monster like shapeshifted into some dead body from elsewhere on the island and tried to infiltrate the survivors group and I, I would love to see that in like comic book form or something like that. I feel like there's a story. <laughs> what to be told does there. it was it written in Spanish or English? I think probably in Spanish. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, I mean that would be a lot of fun, and we'll certainly get into what the monsters' motivations may have been in this first episode, knowing that it is a sentient being, that it is the man in black who has this ultimate scheme to get off the island and instill his brand of evil upon the world. The thing about the monster, from what I remember, is that it can take the form of people, but it has to be the form of people from somebody's memory. So I guess maybe if someone's, like, brother died in the crash, they could do that. And we'll put a pin in that because uh, maybe there's a reason why he killed the pilot, and it might be that particular reason. All right, we'll get into it. So everybody gets to the cockpit. They reach the pilot, a.k.a. Seth Norris, a.k.a. Gregory Grunberg. Uh, And we totally missed, you know, a webisode from season four where Seth Norris's brother Chuck is watching (laughs) on the TV, the the sunken Oceanic Uh. 850 flight, and he's like, oh, my God, my brother's dead. Yeah. But that's not right. I need to go find him. Or the, uh, the MTV personality, John Norris. Who knows? There's... So there's many Norrises. Uh, yeah, the Norris brothers <laughs> join up in the in season eight or season seven, and they decide to yeah. take the island by storm. Everybody knows that Seth, John, and Chuck are brothers, and that is a <laughs> the Norris triplets. The, Nor- the Norris triplets, bad triplets, coming your way <laughs> at some point in the future. But they reach Seth Norris, the pilot. Uh, he reveals that they lost contact. Uh, with with uh, with people back home that they weren't able to radio around and and everything was all fritzy so they needed to to veer off course they wanted to travel back to Fiji because that was closer than going to LA so they could touch down and figure out was wrong so it means uh, that they have crashed somewhere that is fairly close to Fiji which Mike maybe helps explain why Richard Alpert and Jeff Probst look so similar. 
It also explains why they were able to build shelter initially out of some challenge props that got left over between seasons. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Kate is going to go and she's going to look around for Charlie, who has suddenly gone missing. Uh, it turns out that he is in the bathroom. We know why he is there, but she doesn't. She's like, what are you doing in there? Which I think is pretty rude. Because like, what if he had to go poop? Like, what if yeah. he just had to use the potty? What if he's a shy pooper? He doesn't want to poop on the beach, yeah. and he thought, "Oh, here's a bathroom. Yeah. Let me, let me. I have, I'm, I have at least a little bit of privacy to my name. I haven't become a complete savage yet, Kate." Yeah, stealing from Jack's party of five pooper routine. Uh, so we're gonna see uh, some some bad noises. The the noises we have heard from the night before. The noises we had heard just a few moments ago. It's the monster. The monster is gonna show up. And everyone's like, what's happening here? And Greg Grumberg's like, I'll just peek out the window because that seems like a safe thing to do as he gets dragged off and turned into paste on the windshield of the plane. Uh, that will be promptly rubbed on Boone as he hallucinates Shannon being killed by the monster. Yeah, I mean, this is the most gruesome image yet, which is kind of crazy because there was a freaking plane crash. Is a pretty bloodless affair, ultimately. Mm. That's, inter- that's interesting, because I would argue... I mean, I guess the gruesome image is more so how we end part one, but I would say the man getting sucked into the pl- the propeller, the engine of the plane, might be the more gruesome thing, considering we see that entirely on screen. Yeah, I guess I was just going to say, there's no viscera, there's no gore, but he did just get like probably like exploded and incinerated in a minute, so there's not really going to... Yeah, be. everyone got Gary Troop on them that day. Yeah. Uh, so that's, it's, it's the big splash of blood for the pilot so far, and of the pilot, it is the pilot's blood. Uh, everybody runs, everybody's freaking out, this is crazy, this is scary, uh, and everybody's running away, everybody's splitting up, uh, Charlie falls, Jack tries to help him, and then they run away, and we, we're stuck with Kate, we're, we're, we're hanging out with Kate, and seeing her perspective as everything is going on with the monster, and as the story goes, the urban legend, Mike, that we talked about last time uh this is where jack would have died if he had been played by michael keaton they would have surprised killed the main character off halfway through the pilot but he gets to live another day because jack is no longer michael keaton he is now matthew fox and matthew fox is here to stay yeah and i do love again some nice some uh symbolic character moments here where charlie falls Kate's natural instinct is to keep running while Jack is someone who goes back to save him. Kate, I think, will have much more heroic aspects even in the second part of the pilot, but definitely by the end of things. But, I mean, Sawyer is going to blatantly underline Jack as the hero in pilot part two. We see we see it here where he is definitely sacrificing his own well-being to help save Charlie to the point where Charlie tears out in front of him. And it is unknown for a few minutes as to the plight of Jack Shepard, even though he's not played by Michael Keaton. I also think that this is great when we're when we're considering the end of Lost. And again, these aren't things that they can like figure out in advance. They were much more concerned with just making sure that the pilot was filmed and created and good. And they were not thinking about the end of the series at this point. But I think as they were starting to evaluate where they were going to wind up at the end of the show, and especially as they were breaking down the specific final episodes once they reached that point in planning out season six, I got to imagine they went back, they reviewed the tape, they looked back, they watched that again, as John Locke would say, and they looked back at the first episode and what's in here that we can use that will be a especially powerful uh, if we if we echo it, if we reflect it back by the end of the show. And I love that the first half of the pilot ends with Jack and Kate, like, very afraid, very scared. It's pouring rain, and they're running away from the monster. But years from now, both in story time and in the reality of the filming and the production and the release of Lost, they are going to be once again in the pouring rain, uh, very courageously charging headlong at the monster. Uh, So there's just a great, great little bit of symmetry right there uh, that I really greatly enjoy. 
Well, I love it because we'll again talk about the monster's motivations, but I just not to spoil my opinions too much about that section, but I do feel like maybe one of the things the monster does in this first episode is set itself up as this big bad, right? Of like that you can't touch me. I can, you know, crush everything that you love. Granted, because they're candidates from Jacob, he cannot technically touch them. He can certainly manipulate them into doing things, but he can certainly try to flex and give off a big bravado. By the end of it, you know, at this point, they've pulled the cork. The man in black is now mortal, and that's how Jack and Kate get one over on him. It's it's sort of like the I'm not afraid anymore type of moment from Home Alone. I also will say I know that, you know, this was supposed to run a conventional 42 minutes but if we're doing our little fanficking here, as you have done beforehand, I kind of would have loved if the first part of the pilot ended with the scene of Kate hiding in those banyan trees and then counting to five like Jack taught her. I don't know. That just feels so self-contained in a TV episode that if we had ended September 22nd's episode on there, I think that would have been an incredible cliffhanger. Granted, seeing Greg Grungbird's you know, eviscerated body in a tree is a, is a stark image to end on. But I feel like if you're going for the pseudo-horror stuff that we do with the monster, especially in this first season, that would be a really strong note to end on. Well, I think killing off Greg Grunberg and, and ending on that note is, it's not as powerful as it would have been, uh, and I don't think powerful in a good way necessarily, as it would have been if somebody as recognizable as Michael Keaton had been on Lost and just got offed at the end of the first half of the pilot. Uh, but Greg Grunberg at this time is a fairly notable quality for a lot of the people who will be turning uh, tuning into Lost. Heroes hasn't happened yet at this point, um, but he has a starring role on Alias, and I think a lot of the J.J. Abrams fans are hopping over from that show here to Lost. It's like, oh, it's the guy from Alias. Oh, he was here for five minutes. Uh, so I think like to show that guy who's like a very friendly face, who's very lovable in just about everything that he does, uh, is uh, is like just fully gored out by the end of the episode is a pretty harrowing note to end things on. But I hear your point, and I love that moment from Kate so much. The her her recitation of the one two three four five tactic uh, is is really fun. But that's not where the episode ends. The rain does stop. Kate leaves. Uh, she's like powered herself back up. She's pumped herself back up to go back out there and go searching for Charlie and Jack. She finds Charlie. It's not Jack. She's not satisfied enough with that. She wants to find Jack. She says, Mike, and I quote, we have to go back for him. Uh, so your first appearance, if we have to go back, uh, Joe right. McNally had written in and, and said, was this some, was the we have to go back from season three? Is it going to be some sort of callback to Kate's quick we have to go back from the jungle? Or am I just overthinking things? Joe, I think you're just overthinking things, but so am I. Yeah, listen, uh, it's so interesting to see how much her tune changes in a few years. You know, Jack could say, that was your thing! You said the <laughs> thing, and now you don't want to do the thing? Come on! Yeah, it was you! You were the one! I was, I'm, I'm trying to reference you here! Uh, <laughs> and classic Jack is just going to steal all the credit, and he's going to get the iconic line in the future. But let the record reflect, the first person on Lost to say we have to go back is indeed mm-hmm. Evangeline Lilly as Kate Austin in the very first episode, the very first half of the very first episode. Yes, Kate had to run so Jack could fly yes, a plane because he knows how to do that. Yeah, in case you guys weren't aware. Uh, they do go back. They find Jack. They find the pilot. The pilot is very, very, very dead. Uh, and I'm very sad because if Greg Grumberg is dead and his corpse is on the island, then the monster always could have shapeshifted into Greg Grumberg. And I'm, I'm sad that we never got a future episode of Lost 
where the man in black tried to like con Frank Lapidus by being like, hey, it's me, it's Seth, it's Seth Norris, you know, John and Chuck's brother, your friend. We're all, we're back from the old flying days together. And Frank yeah, Lapidus would know, have been able to see through his BS and Yeah, I was going to say, Frank Lapidus would just shoot him with a harpoon gun, but Kyle him right there, right then. He takes no BS when it comes to seeing through the, all those monkey shines, monkey island shines. Yeah, Mike Bloom, that is an excellent uh, alternate ending for Lost, though. You know, like the how the, the how this should have ended version of Lost. With, well, I was going to say uh, the literal how it should have ended version does really just put a shrine to Frank Lapidus. I believe they do a MacGruber parody about Frank Lapidus, if I remember correctly. That's amazing. I'm sure we'll get there when the time comes. Uh, we're moving on to story point two, which is an ominous omen for future podcasts. Good thing the time limit is not a factor here in our discussion <laughs> of the pile. But we yeah, will, we've, we've already passed our lower limit. <laughs> We will, we will have to tighten up for the future, and I am sure that we will. But story point number two is the story of Pilot Part Two. Uh, before we before we get into this, I will say this is a fantastic episode in general. I know a great RHB podcaster, Akiva Winnaker, asked me offline if this is our favorite pilot ever. It is for me. That being said, do you have a favorite half? Because I personally, as much as I love part two, I prefer part one above part two, personally. I prefer part two emotionally because it's the first episode of Lost that I ever watched live. Uh, so I don't think that I would ever be able to get out of my own way on that. But the plane crash is so freaking iconic. And the really great iconic moments of part two, um, the two that come to mind. I mean, I, guess, I mean, there's a lot of iconic stuff in the second half that we're about to get into uh, with the polar bear of it all and the final scene of pilot part two um but i think that the plane crash is just tough to argue with uh yeah either way you answered it i wouldn't be mad at you and i think for me i guess my my cheat of an answer uh my my real answer would be like gun to my head pilot part two would be my answer but my cheat of an answer would be it's all one episode you know it's just they they Mm. broke it up across two different weeks which i think is an odd like the plane yeah like you know i think they, they cracked it up somewhere over fiji and i don't know if that was the right choice uh obviously who are we to second guess that in retrospect because lost went on to become an astronomical hit uh not an astronomy hit it was not a hit in my astronomy lecture in fact it ended my astronomy lecture um let's get into the story of pilot part two we begin again with a flashback charlie and kate they're walking around and charlie's like ah i was such a coward it was it was terrible i didn't do anything i puked that's the one tangible contribution to the trip and kate's like you're not a coward i think that you're very brave and then we come to see in flashback form uh, why Charlie was on the track. He was going in search of drugs. Uh, and uh, that's obviously a very big part of his arc. So we're establishing that here in uh, the first half of the, or the first scene of the second half of the pilot. It's so interesting watching Charlie's character. You and Joe spoke about this really interestingly uh, in her watch about how, particularly season two, Charlie, I'll, I totally agree with you at the outset that I think season two, Charlie, they just had no idea what to do with. So they're like, let's just make him, you know, pretty demonic because he's really addicted to heroin. But in this first episode especially, I feel like he usurps Hurley as the comedic relief. And maybe it's because he's going on all these treks that we see him for much more. But damn, I love how just like sprightly and silly Dominic Moynihan can be. Especially in this flashback. You could tell he's a musician because he's like drumming on the armrest uh, repeatedly. And he's trying to evade as many flight attendants as possible. And he's able to do it successfully, no thanks to the turbulence that happens to occur at the same time. Yeah, no, he's very very spry, much like Hurley himself. Yeah, exactly. Very spry guy. Uh, We get a couple of uh, beach scenes that are happening, uh, including the fact that Walt uh, is in search 
of his dog. He is looking for Vincent. He's not going to find Vincent. He is going to find handcuffs. Uh, so either there is somebody on this flight who's into some kinky stuff, or there is a prisoner uh, who is being escorted on this flight. Uh, and we see how island gossip works around these parts when we cut from that moment where Walt and therefore Michael find the handcuffs to the rest of the group all in like this big kerfluffle about the handcuffs and who the prisoner is. And it leads to like an actual all out brawl between Saeed and Sawyer, uh, who are two men who are going to embark on numerous interrogation slash torture sessions together in the future. And it's also a great demonstration of how the two of them fight. Like most days of the week, I would say Saeed is the person who I put my money on to beat anybody in a fight. But then you Mm -hmm. see Sawyer do like the trick where he like scoops up a a little handful of sand and tosses it into Saeed's eyes. Uh, It's like, that's very Sawyer. Like he's, he's, uh, he's, he's very happy to bend to the rules. No, he fights dirty. He completely fights dirty. And I think that's, what's going to make Sawyer like prevail in the streets. I feel like if they, if we get this big UFC title bout of Jarrah versus Ford, I feel like my money's on Saeed just because you said, I think his resume speaks for itself. But if you just get them out in the natural, Sawyer's got it. I will also say, uh, very schoolyard, everyone surrounding them in a circle and just not doing anything. Like, it's so funny how it takes Jack coming in to break it up for Michael to be like, oh, yeah, I guess I should step in, too. Yeah, stop it, guys. Stop fighting. Uh, you could tell that maybe they had sort of a, a side bet going on as to who was going to crush this at the end of the day. Well, luckily, we will get the chance to to see some more fisticuffs between Sawyer and Saeed later on, even this very season. So we'll talk about the grudge match, uh, round two of Ford v. Jarrah, <laughs> uh, in this in this uh, this skirmish, in this first round. And we'll get into it more in the eight sounds section. Uh, we do get Sawyer as being terrible to Saeed, but he's also terrible to Hurley. He's making a really bad first impression with everybody and yeah, I think we get uh, we get our first nickname here, right? Yeah, he calls Hurley Lardo, which is very mean. Uh, and, on, and feels like a little unoriginal. Like, Sawyer usually is going for, like, the quick names or the pop culture references. Lardo just seems like a low blow. Lardo is a low blow. I don't like that one. But it bonds Saeed and Hurley together. Uh, they have their, their fun little moment where they meet each other. Uh, they bond over uh, uh, Hurley at first. Things like, oh, my friend was in the army too. He fought in the Gulf War. You guys probably, you may have known each other. And Saeed's like, yeah, maybe. But if so, it's probably because like either I killed him or he killed my friends or something like that. And like it's not going to be the fairy tale ending that you want it to be, Hurley. Uh, but it's a, it's a fun scene between these two actors for sure yeah it's interesting because it's a dynamic that i don't really remember because i mean they dovetail their storylines in so many different ways i would say in general i guess i forgot in the beginning especially in these pilot episodes how saeed is essentially the professor of this group of gilligan's island wannabes with him fixing the transceiver we're gonna find out a little bit more of his like deeply romantic side obviously with solitary but for now it's all about his technical knowledge and we are a Far, far stones throw away from the assassin, uh, born-again, you know, uh, vapid existence of a human that we get later on with Saeed. You don't get a ton of it, but I, I, I do love Hurley and Saeed's relationship when we get to see it. And we do get to see some of it in those flash-forwards and in that off-island timeline that we're going to be building up to. Long way away for now, but I, I like that there's a little bit of the seed of that here in the pilot. Um, following all of this, Kate's going to visit Jack. 
Uh, she's been talking to Saeed. Saeed's been fixing the radio, the transceiver that they found in the cockpit. He thinks that he might be able to to use it, but they got to get very, very high up. There's this really funny shot that I don't think. I, I think this is one of the moments that doesn't play up. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't hold very well when you go back and you look. There's like this really uh, ominous Giacchino score, Michael Giacchino score that's coming in uh, as they're like craning their necks and looking up, and it's just cutting back to the island panning up yeah. and panning up on Kate's face. <laughs> It's like, oh man, we're gonna have to hike that high. Oh man, yeah. They, they, you could have easily put in a sound effect of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, it's it's surprising. Maybe they could have used the trombones yeah. at the end there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but we know that that is going to happen. That Kate is going to embark on that mission. She's going to tell Jack, "I'm going back into the jungle." Jack's like, "Hey, don't do that." We just survived the monster again. Uh, how do you want to go back into the jungle? And he's already trying to tell Kate what to do. Classic mm-hmm. Jack, uh, you know, again, fully formed from the get-go. Uh, but he's telling her that at the very least, if you're going to go in there and if you encounter the monster, you should run. And Kate's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry about it. I, <laughs> that's what I do. That's my move. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, uh, in fact, he'll tell her so to do so again in two seasons from now. I, I really like the second half for Kate's character in particular. Not only are we going to get her flashback, but I think it really does establish her as a leading force as well. You know, I think a lot of people do remember her being tied into Jack's character, both romantically and just from a mission perspective. There's a lot of stuff that Kate and Jack do together that sometimes you forget about Kate's independence and the fact that this second mission is really her and Saeed spearheading it. Jack is, you know, beach bound working on this marshal. His hands are tied or handcuffed as they were. And so this is really an opportunity for her to sort of stretch her legs. And it also brings up an alternate universe where, again, if Michael Keaton played Jack and died, it was assumed that Kate was going to step up into this leadership position. And I feel like... You can see the bones of that in the pilot, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Just much like Adam and Eve in the cave, you can see some bones glaring through there of, you know, what Kate's leadership style would look like. And it's really interesting to watch. I'm very excited. I mean, obviously, we're going to be talking about a lot more Kate in the next episode, especially. But it'll be very interesting to track, you know, when does... When do we lose some of that and it become, you know, tied more into Jack's character? Or is that never going to go away and we just might be misremembering the character? All right, we'll track it. Um, So Kate's going to go off. Uh, We get a couple of other scenes that are happening back uh, on the beach. Jin is, like, cutting up some sea urchins, some uni hors d'oeuvres for everybody, which Hurley laughs at. Claire is happy to eat anything. Uh, And there's a fun moment between Jin and Claire uh, where the baby is kicking and Jin is not, like, okay with touching Claire's tummy. He's like, oh, God, I don't like babies. No way am I going back for babies at all. I would rather drown than go take care of a baby. Oh, man, dark. (laughs) I'm surprised, honestly. I was sitting on my hands for an hour to finally talk about Jin and Son. Because, yeah, this is a... this this is a pretty terrible look for Jin in most of the pilot. I will say it's very complicated, more complicated than I remember, because when we do get these scenes of, you know, true to his family's nature, he is taking up the fisherman role. He's becoming the provider and trying to catch these sea urchins. He's the one who's telling Sun, you know, you must stay with me. He's preventing anyone from talking with Sun. He's making her button up her one cardigan button when it's probably like a bajillion degrees outside. Uh, but he does, you know, try to serve raw urchin to everyone to keep them satisfied. So it's 
It's a very comp- it's a surprisingly complicated characterization for a character who does not get much shade to him until we really get into the Quan centered stuff. For me, like I'm, I, I can have I, I go easier on Jin knowing the full scope of his story and like understanding him a bit more. I think y- you can also tell that they that the writing team has in mind a more you know. A, a fuller picture of who this man is ultimately going to be, even from the early days. I think that they're trying to bake some of that stuff in. Um, and I, I don't know how much of that actually is on the writing or just the the affability of Daniel Day Kim, who plays Jin and plays him so effectively. Uh, but I think that I'm willing to give him a little bit of rope just because I know how wonderful he's going to be as we push further into into Lost. Um, beyond that, there's there's Jack and Hurley on the beach, and Jack basically recruits Hurley as his nurse. Uh, he sends Hurley off to go and find drugs that end in myosin and psyllin. Uh, apparently, those are antibiotics. This is super helpful information to remember in case we find ourselves in a post-apocalypse, Mike, which I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, who knows? Certainly possible. Just remember the myosin and the psyllins. Um, that's, that's useful until we also find out that Hurley, he's not so good with blood. Uh, he's going to pass out on the marshal during surgery. Uh, thankfully, this will improve with time, but it is a very funny scene with Jorge Garcia just flattening out the marshal. We'll hear more of that uh, when we get to the eight sounds. Yeah. I, I will say, actually, speaking of blood, another great thing that I loved about the plane crash, not to go too far back, is production did a really interesting thing, purposely so, in putting everyone in a lot of whites and darks and basically no red. Oh, not even in the Oceanic logo is there any red. And that's to really make Jack's wound stand out when he's finally done with, you know, he's, he's done with his shift for right now of beachside emergency care. And he takes off his jacket and we see the red seeping through. It's just a really, you know, small note on color themes that I thought was really cool. But I'm glad Hurley didn't see it because he'd already had, you know, a bit of a whopper d- avoiding that giant explosion from the plane wing falling down. That just would have been icing on top of that very unfortunate cake. All right, let's get into the into the trek. And the trek begins, initially, it's just going to be Kate and Saeed, and then a bunch of other people are going to start latching on. It begins with Boone, the aforementioned, and I'm sure we will talk about him in great detail when we start handing out MVP and LVP awards. Uh, the, 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 the Boone and Shannon of it all. As Shannon's crying, she's looking at a dead body. She's, like, wallowing in her trauma and otherwise being, quote-unquote, worthless, according to Boone, uh, which is so harsh. Uh, and he says to her at one point, uh, one of my favorite things to say when it comes to Lost, I, I have a, a good friend who I quote Lost back and forth with all the time. We always just shout at each other, okay, Shannon, what are you thinking? Uh, which is just so annoying and very annoying. And I'm, I'm going to out myself as a bit of a boon defender later on, but this is indefensible. He's such an asshole to Shannon. Yeah, this is a... Not very fun. And I guess, you know, it does tie into everything. To be fair, before this moment, she had been pretty much in denial about everything. You know, her being like, I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'll wait till I eat on the rescue boat. You know, they they had a black box, dingus. They're going to figure out where we are. And now I think it's finally starting, the reality is starting to set in for her. But Boone is at the end of his rope here. Maybe it's due to the fact that she kind of gave him weird blue balls uh, by the time they were getting <laughs> right. on the flight. Uh, yeah. Boon balls, if you will. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so so maybe that sort of has tied into their relationship. But yeah, I mean, uh, I would say only a step above Jin and Sun in terms of relationship dynamics are Boone and Shannon right now. 
Yeah, I mean, they're coming in with some very, very, very awkward baggage. Uh, and a lot of it because they've, they've packed quite a bit. Yeah, very Oceania. materialistic, this, this these two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're going to join the hiking party because Shannon's like, I'm going to prove my worth. I'm going to show you Boone. And so Boone's going to tag along as well. And Charlie's like, yeah, yeah, I'll come because Shannon is attractive and I would like to cozy oh up next to Shannon. That's like literally yeah, Charlie's must- reason for going. They must have ran out of oceanic water bottles because boy is thirsty, which he's is thirsty. weird. He's going to find uh, another love on the island. So it's very weird that he's like, ooh, all right. Uh, well, it's been a day. Let me start thinking about hitting on women now. I think what's weirder about it, too, is he is uh, he's just survived the monster attack. He already has the heroin. I believe he is presently on heroin in this moment and he's going to decide that shannon is so attractive that he is going to risk life and limb by going back into the jungle just to hang out with shannon for a little while longer maybe an early sign that they did not always know what to do with charlie pace but uh i'm glad he's along for the trek because ultimately he is going to deliver a very iconic line which we will hear uh we we will see sawyer is going to join the 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 crowd as well after he is reading his own Sawyer letter to himself. Because, uh, Mike, that's what we do as writers. We read our own work. This is something yeah. that, that we do. Well, nothing to do out here. Might as well uh, do a bit of editing. See if I can publish this when I get back. You know, it's unpublished still. He has not yet met the man that that letter is intended for. So you just uh, you revise and you revise and you revise until you get it right. So I, do you I, think- I respect it. Do you think in 2019 Sawyer would uh, self-publish on Amazon his own Sawyer yes, letter? Yes, yes, yes. I think so. I think that he would he would uh, sell it as an ebook for sure. Uh, it's a very technologically savvy guy. Uh, he knows the market very well. But he's going to join the crew. He's going to have the great line where it says uh, where Kate's like, "Oh, you decided to join." And he goes, "I'm a complex guy, sweetheart," which I've always said is complicated guy, sweetheart, which is wrong. Uh, apparently, that's a fairly common uh, mistake. Uh, I try to to forget that uh, that that I try to get that right moving forward. We got it right here today, uh, and it leads us into the hike up the hill, which is a scene that you probably remember. It's very epic. It's got the Hollywood and Vines theme song, uh, which the great Alex G, not G Aquino, uh, has used as the base for our own down the hatch theme song here. So you will not hear it again in this podcast, but you will hear it every week for the next couple of years. Uh, speaking uh, speaking of Sawyer, just briefly, I feel like we haven't get a lot of like, okay, this takes place in 2004-ness from Lost, which leads to his timeliness. The one exception might be Sawyer's wardrobe. Did you take note of what Sawyer was uh, wearing, his crash clothing of choice, Josh? He had like a t-shirt and a long sleeve shirt underneath, but I didn't yeah. pay any attention to any logos if there's something to, to note. But that's that just feels like I feel like I haven't seen anyone wear that style in at least like fifty years. That was very much like the skate park look from yeah. when I was a teenager. The long sleeve shirt underneath with the t shirt on top. I I was never cool enough to pull off specifically, but it just shows how trendy Sawyer is. He was uh you know maybe he saw Tony Hawk in the window and decided to replicate it. Maybe that was his next con was to become a, a pro skater. He's like a regular Bam Margera fan. Uh, but he, he's a- <laughs> I would I would I would trick my father, but you know. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah, I think that Sawyer uh, most likely to be part of the jackass crowd 
of of the of the of the losties that we've met thus far. Uh, he's eventually going to get into like button down mode. He'll clean up his act. He also often will just say, "I don't even need a shirt." Uh, so yeah. Sawyer's fashion oh, will improve. No, I know. I want like my name's a Sawyer, and this is the uh, steal everyone's <laughs> asthma medicine yeah, trick. <laughs> exactly. Uh, back on the beach, we see Walt. He's on a break from reading comic books about polar bears. He meets John Locke. John Locke spoils the basic premise of Lost. We will revisit that Oh, is that what he means when he says, want to know a secret? I think so. I think he tells him the ending. You want to know a secret? You're not going to be on the show. <laughs> That's why long. Walt leaves. Like, I already know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm good. I'm out. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of polar bears, the gang finds one in the jungle. Uh, at the time, it's very weird and hard to explain why is there a polar bear in the tropical island here. Uh, now, with the benefit of knowing that the Dharma Initiative is the thing and they brought polar bears to the island, it's a little less weird. Uh, it's still somewhat of a challenge to explain to people who have never seen Lost. Um, also, do you think that they ate the polar bear? I feel like I would eat the polar bear. I don't know. Point. Considering uh, Hurley turned down the raw sea urchin, I don't know how much he's really hungering for polar bear meat. I guess it's point. too early. It's too early. It's too early to eat the polar bear. Um, but there's a, the gun is involved, and Sawyer has revealed he has a gun. He found a marshal. He nicked it off the marshal. The marshal was hurt. He doesn't need it. Kate nicks the gun off of Sawyer. Uh, she pretends she has no idea how to use it. It is a lie. She is lying. This is one of the many Kate lies. She totally knows how to use a gun. Uh, and she, she disarms it. She's like, Said, how do I do this? And Said walks her through it. She disarms the gun. She hands the pieces to both Said and Sawyer. We find out via flashback that it is Kate who is the prisoner. And that ominous revelation leads us into the final act of the episode in which we hear from Danielle Rousseau for the first time. And she's been broadcasting here for 16 years. Yes, that is right. 16 years and five months. The same number of stars that you should leave us when you rate and review down the hatch uh, on your podcast app of choice. And it leads us to guys, where are we? And Mike Bloom, that's the pilot. That's the And more confetti is rained down because he said the other line. Guys, where are we? Uh, and that is the story of Pilot Part 2. So we are over an hour into the podcast, <laughs> and we have made it through the first two story points of the first of our four segments here on Down the Hatch. Uh, how are we doing so far, everyone? <laughs> I'm, uh, listen, I, if I'm answering on behalf of everybody, I'm doing fantastic. Again, I, I, we're usually going to be talking about one episode. This was a, two supersized episodes. I know that episode Pilot Part 2, I think, was 39 minutes instead of 42, but it's almost an hour and a half of loss that we were just talking through. It's a lot. And a lot happened. It's a lot, and there's a lot of establishing stuff that we want to talk about, and we're, we're going to extend that right now. We have Story Point 3 is reserved for just, like, some character connection takeaways, thematic takeaways, long view takeaways. What What's some of the stuff that the pilot established for us with the benefit of knowing where Lost goes that we want to talk about here. Frankly, I think we talked about a lot of that stuff in the yeah. recapping of these two episodes. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time here, but is there any like additional stuff? Like for you being somebody who loves Jin so much and, and you're looking at the fatherhood themes here on Lost and looking at what it's going to be like once Claire has Aaron and tracking that story and knowing that Jin is going to be present for the birth of Aaron. Was that fun to, to see that scene and to see that moment between Jin and Claire? Yeah, because, I mean, I think initially it was not necessarily him being like, oh, no, not kids. It's more so him being like, I come from this culture where it's very conservative. We don't usually touch pregnant women's bellies of people that we aren't married to. But that's another great sort of thing about loss. We talked about this a bit in our preview episode about how this section of people really is a good cross-section of just 
different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities. And so, you know, you have the more Western Claire being like, oh, yeah, touch the baby. It's totally fine. And Jin, you know, coming from this more Eastern culture saying, ah, we do not usually do this. And the fact that there is such a language barrier is going to be very fun as well. I think it's also fun that, you know, Michael is asking Sun where her son is concerning the connection that they are going to have later on in the season. Uh, this isn't a character connection thing, but I did think it was very interesting how uh, Kate, you know, when talking about the crash, which when we see her flashback, uh, I still think the thing that especially holds up is that effect of the entire back half of the plane falling off. It's still crazy. I think that's, you know, 2004 CGI, but it still looks pretty damn good and really realistic. Uh, but when she talks about the crash scene. She says, I couldn't bring myself to look back. And I think that's a really big theme with her character, but with a lot of other people as well. This idea of making a new start for yourself on the island. Again, it's this idea of tabula rasa. We're going to experience this with her, with Locke especially. Uh, even someone like with Saeed, who might have been so stigmatized due to his previous occupation in the real world and now sort of has an ability to make a new name for himself. Contrast that with someone like Jack, who's jumping into a heroic role that he might do so in his real life, or someone like Sawyer, who just keeps on conning for the first season as well. So I think that's an interesting theme that I started to see throughout these first couple of episodes is, you know, when it comes to this idea of a plane crash, who's settling in and being like, great, all right, we're going to move on here. We might focus on being rescued, but uh, I'm also going to use this as an opportunity to reinvent myself. Kate's coming from more criminal circumstances where obviously she does not want to go back to the life that she had, but I thought it was a nice little thematic point to emphasize. Yeah, I like what you mentioned about the eyes before, and that's something to watch for throughout. I'm, so many of these episodes here in the in the early going of Lost are going to open that way, where we're going to be focused on somebody's face. Uh, we're going to be focused on somebody's eye. The eye is the window to the soul. We know that the soul is going to be such a, a pivotal thing on Lost. It is going to end on the departures of of souls into a new plane of existence. Uh, so, so that's definitely something to, to keep tabs on as well. And I just love the way that the, that the first episode and especially the, the first few minutes of the first episode really do mirror, uh, the ending of lost. Uh, there's, you know, it's not just Jack's eye opening slash closing in the finale, um, and him being in the bamboo forest and waking up and Vincent being there. Those images are very, very obvious. Um, but there's also the fact that like Jack runs out and sees a plane crash and all of these people are gathered together for the first time ever. And in the very final episode of lost, we will see a plane flying away. And many of these people are on that plane and the ones who did not survive and make it to that plane are going to find each other again anyway. So, so I, I think that just knowing where Lost ends, the bookending quality of this show, uh, again, not a pre-planned thing, certainly at this stage of the game, um, but something that I think works really well the deeper they got into the writing. Uh, for, yeah. me, for, for me anyway, and I know not for everybody, but for me, I think is, is really fun stuff. It's a really cool, it's the opposite of a mirror, but to see, you know, how these characters start completely, you know, in their own business, running around screaming, you know, Jack's trying to rally people together, but they're pretty much all in panic mode, ends with all of them sitting in a church, you know, looking at each other, they fundamentally affected each other's lives, and they're ready to move on together. It signifies simultaneously, you know, the journey that they went on, but also coming full circle at the same time. In true Lost fashion, it's both, which, and somehow it's not paradoxical at the same time. 
All right, so let's move on to story point four, because I think we talked a lot about the character connections and the takeaways and the thematic stuff, and we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go through the podcast for sure, but we got to keep this plane uh, from, crash- from crashing. One crash is enough, uh, but let's get into some of the production stuff and how the plane crash came together. Story point four, we're pulling the curtain back with some details from the Ben behind the curtain who has gathered a lot of really fascinating material, including how the plane wreck came to life. Ben Martell writes that to ensure the plane wreckage seemed realistic, the producers had purchased a real Lockheed L1011 from a plane cemetery in the Mojave Desert. The plane only cost $35,000, but the shipping cost $450,000. It's a hefty penny, Mike Bloom. I mean, they had to ship it all the way to Hawaii, which... Uh, you know, a lot of Ben stuff is coming from this uh, little DVD featurette called Designing a Disaster, which is entirely about the set design for the plane crash. It's a big investment considering that we're going to use this from now on until we start moving into the hatch, which is when, you know, things become a bit more divided. I highly recommend people check it out. It's on YouTube. I think it's about like 11 minutes long, but it is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, basically what they did was they found this L-1011 plane they cut it up, they put it on a bunch of different freighters, they shipped it to Hawaii, and then they had to reassemble it, in in a manner of speaking. Reassemble it enough that it looks like, you know, a relatively solid plane and crashed on the beach. Yeah, and I mean, there's still wreckage, uh, or I think at the time, they had they had a lot of this that was still out there. Uh, in watching this episode on Amazon, they've got like the x-ray feature where you can see some trivia and just like continuity goofs along the way uh one of the notes is that as people were flying into hawaii uh and flying into honolulu during the production of lost they would see like this this slice of beach that had a plane wreck on it and people would have to like the pilot would have to come in over the over the loudspeaker and be like yeah don't worry about that it's a show it's tv show it's not real everything is fine Uh, Could could they have pulled the bernard and made like fake out of logs and just put that on the bottom to make them know that like hey it's, it's not real just so you know yeah it's all good it's all fine uh, but they had to be careful about what they shipped to hawaii they couldn't ship the tail for instance they just shipped the parts that they needed from the plane so they shipped the cockpit section and the main fuselage at the two separate locations uh when seen from above the fuselage crash site it, it does look very real uh set decorator rick romer he res- he researched debris fields so that he was able to create a realistic version of the way in which the wreckage would be strewn across the beach in the event of a crash uh but once jj abrams got to set he asked for pieces to be moved around to create the most dynamic scene composition and i think that that's fine right i mean we're not experts on uh debris fields i appreciate the effort that goes into that and i think getting close to that right is you know that's going to help lend some authenticity to the moment but i think you have to you have to give the storytellers the freedom to to arrange the set in a way that is going to tell the most compelling narrative story you have to have that little bit of wiggle room uh not Mm. to plug a different podcast we do in the rhap network yeah i mean i would say hopefully there are not too many jacks out there who are like well i'm an expert i know about plane crashes and i don't know about that uh i mean for what it's worth it does look super realistic to the point where I believe they actually talk about, you know, warnings from the air. I believe actually around the area they had to put up signs that were like, hey, this is a set for a movie. Because I could imagine driving down the beach in Hawaii and seeing a plane crash, you would be regarded to call every emergency service possible. So, again, it's an investment considering that they used it for a super long time. Uh, and I think 
it was, you know, sturdy for a reason. Maybe not so much that wing. They pretty much got rid of that immediately. But it's just truly remarkable to see how this all came together. And apparently under such a tight schedule as well. Like, I think they put it together, like, only a few days before they ended up starting production on it. They didn't have a lot of time. Um, one of the one of the great takeaways from watching this on Amazon and seeing uh, the like the goofs and the trivia. Uh, this is fun, and this is just like a fun thing to be a little nerdy about. Uh, there's uh, what they call a revealing mistake. I love the way that Amazon uh, builds this stuff. This is a revealing mistake when the scene where the engine explodes, uh, when when Gary Troop gets sucked into the thing, when the scene where the engine explodes is slowed down. You could see a black object flying down and hitting the engine. Some fans believe that this may have been the monster destroying the engine, but the producers have confirmed that it's merely a CGI rendering error and that what was meant to be debris flying away from the exploding engine instead became an object hitting it. I would like to believe, uh, in in my head canon, it's the monster. In my head canon, the monster's like, oh, no, you don't. Sorry, Gary Troop. <laughs> well, I believe. Well, I believe Troop was I a candidate. I read that twin, Gary. So- yeah, exactly. There's zero stars. Yeah, as he blows him up. Uh, you know, I I like to imagine that the monster was excited to meet some new friends. He gets bored. So yeah, he's exactly. Just like he's new, showing off and he's playing new things to play with. He just plays in his very. Listen, he's not. He lost his Sinet partner since he became the smoke monster. So maybe he's his sense of play is a bit different than what it used to be. So uh, another bit of trivia about the plane, uh, as per Amazon, for the first flashback in the series set on board the plane before it crashes, the interior fuselage set was the same one that was used in 2004 feature film Soul Plane. Uh, oh so, my have you ever seen soul plane i i have indeed it's been a very so very has, long so time have I. <laughs> yes yes I'm, I'm thinking of bonus podcast i remember because my dad specifically said like oh this seems like airplane you know the the zuckers abram and zuckers movie it was not at all but we still watched it nonetheless yeah uh i mean the survivors of oceanic 815 are going to meet in some sort of sideways afterlife church that perhaps we could call the soul plane. Uh, if you, if you wish, like I won't say it unless Snoop Dogg is the pilot. That what's, that's what makes the true soul plane. Snoop Dogg versus Frank Lapidus in a pilot off. I don't know whose odds I like. I think ultimately you have to go with Snoop Dogg. And I, I, yes. I hate to bet against my man, Frank Lapidus, but. Although yeah, I think, spoiler Stewart. alert for uh, Soul Plane. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. Snoop Dogg die. I think he's die? <laughs> pretty sure he. Did. No, you know what? I'm pretty sure he dies, but I'm pretty sure he comes back to life when the plane uh, lands. I, uh, if I remember right. correctly. That's right. That's right. I think you're right about that. I think you're right. Come to Down the Hats, where you will get all the Soul Plane <laughs> trivia you did not know that you needed, nor uh, did you need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The pilot is fantastic. It won a bunch of awards. This is some more behind the scenes intel. For you, uh, won a number of awards. It was nominated for others. They won several Emmys. The episode won an Emmy for directing for J.J. Abrams, single camera editing for Mary Jo Markey, music composition for the great Michael Giacchino, and special visual effects for the full special effects team. It was also nominated for writing and sound editing. And uh, I don't, you know, offhand know what it was up against, but 
it deserves all of the accolades. Deserves absolutely e- everything. Even that black thing, Josh? Should we revoke the Emmy based on that the truth about the black thing in the propeller? No, because we can now like explain it retroactively as that was Smokey McSmokerson. That was uh that was not Locke. He was just like having a great time and hanging out with the Oceanic Survivors, and that was it. All right. Emmy retained for now. Emmy, Emmy retained. Um, there's uh, some notes about the Jungle Trek. Uh, in the very first meeting between J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof, they fleshed out an initial vision for the Trek to Higher Ground, which included all of the series regulars going up to Higher Ground and returning to the beach to discover that all of the rest of the survivors from the fuselage were gone. They had been kidnapped by the others. Uh, the scene changed before production began, but it was the genesis of the idea that at some point the others would be looking to kidnap some of the survivors for some purpose. Uh, so that would have been that would have been a pretty freaky way to end too. I think it would have been a little too much too quick. Um, I think much like the Michael Keaton thing. I think like this is it's like a good idea, but it's 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 probably a lot, and there's still much of the survival aspect thing that they can be playing with um, early on before they get into uh, before they get into the others of it all. I think yeah, you I, know it takes about half the season to get into that stuff. I would say they essentially cop that onto the Taylor storyline where it wasn't everybody at once, but you know, that's where Cindy and the kids disappear. And then we start sort of hemorrhaging people. So I guess they sort of use threads of that in a future storyline. All right, let's get into the eight sounds segment of this podcast. And for those who need a refresher, this is the part where we are replaying parts of the pilot parts of the episode that we are going to be talking about on any given week. These are sounds from the episode, whether they're, uh, they're, they're scenes we want to talk about more in depth or just scenes that are so great that we just want to replay play, uh, personal favorites, anything along those lines. Uh, and we've already played you a little bit from the plane crash at the top of the podcast, so we're not going to revisit that. But I do want to go through the one, two, three, four, five story between Jack and Kate because it's awesome. Uh, apparently, this is Evangeline Lilly and Matthew Fox's. This was, this, this was the audition scene for Jack and Kate. Uh, and to to know that and to to have that energy brimming beneath the scene, I think is it, it it's really fun to reexamine it. So uh, let's revisit the one, two, three, four, five story. I might throw up on you. You're doing fine. You don't seem afraid at all. I don't understand that. Well, fear is sort of an odd thing. When I was in residency, my first solo procedure was a spinal surgery on a 16-year-old kid and girl. And at the end, after 13 hours, I was closing her up and I I accidentally ripped her girl sack. It's right at the base of the spine where all the nerves come together. Membrane is thin as tissue. And so it, it ripped open. And the nerves just spilled out of her like angel hair pasta. Spinal fluid flowing out of her and I... Terror was just so crazy, so real, and I knew I had to deal with it. So I just made a choice. I'd let the fear in, let it take over, let it do its thing, but only for five seconds. That's all I was going to give it. So I started to count. One, 
two, three, four, five. And it was gone. I went back to work, sewed her up, and she was fine. If that had been me, if I would have run for the door. No, I don't think that's true. They're not running now. I mean, I, I don't do know think about you, Josh. Run. I am hungry for angel hair pasta. <laughs> I, I I hate angel hair pasta. Uh, so do I. I really I hate do. Angel hair pasta. I really do, and I think a lot of it is tied into the way that Jack Shepard describes, uh, like the nerves falling out of of this poor woman and looking like angel hair pasta. And when he talks about like the spinal fluid with it too, I just think of like angel hair Alfredo. And uh. I don't, I like don't eat Alfredo sauce. I don't eat angel hair pasta. This this completely ruined angel hair pasta for me. And I, I hope it does not for you, the listener right now. It reminds me, like, I feel like Jack has spent a lot of time doing haunted houses of like reaching to this bowl of grapes. I mean, eyeballs and here's a bowl of nerves. I mean, when we eventually have the uh, Down the Hatch Halloween party, we absolutely have to have angel hair pasta on the menu, uh, I think is is the only way to fly. If you have the nerve to eat it. Uh, but much like Kate says at the beginning of that clip, uh, I think I'm going to throw up on you. Uh, when, I, <laughs> when I hear about your angel hair pasta nerves, I think it's just too much. <laughs> We didn't. Uh, it, this wasn't in the clip, but I would love that Jack sort of like coerces Kate to get in, get into this sewing job by being like, "Hey, uh, did you ever patch a pair of jeans up? Because this is completely <laughs> yeah. similar." Yeah. Uh, ben Martell notes: Has anybody in the history of time ever patched a pair of jeans? No. Isn't uh, the style I, the exact opposite to like rip your jeans to create holes you like in to them? Rip them? You like to rip? Could you just like rip my back open a little bit more? Would be. <laughs> I think it'd be a really cool look. Well, then Kate responds with, oh, I did the drapes in my apartment, which uh, we're going to get her flashback episode next time. I really want to pay attention to those drapes because I want to see her craftsmanship and how that sort of translates to what she did on Jack. Yeah, I wonder if we... Uh, if I, I haven't gone and checked out the drapes at Ray Mullen's farm, uh, but we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to see next week. Let's go to sound number two. Uh, and there's some dialogue here, but it's not really the dialogue... We want you to focus on... Let's just roll the clip and then we'll explain what it is we were just listening listening to. I'm Kate. Jack. Who was that? was weird, right? Is that Vincent? It's not Vincent. Did anybody see that? Yeah. Oh!
<laughs> Very terrific. The first appearance of the smoke monster on Lost. And so many people get involved in it. And I and I love that aspect yeah. of it. That it's the first night. It's like, hey, welcome to the island. I know that plane crash was pretty traumatic. Uh, guess what's more traumatic? I'm here. I'm this very scary sounding thing that's probably very big and may even be a dinosaur, but isn't actually a dinosaur. It's actually a lot worse than that. Uh, and you're on my island. And yeah. enjoy that. Have, I, l- I love, that. I know Michael's going to say it down the line of like, that doesn't sound natural. It's, but it sounds so bestial to me just listening to it. Like it almost has like whale cries in there mixed with, like you said, some dinosaur noises thrown in there to make it almost sound maybe overly naturalistic. I love the way this scene is done as well, because it really has all the, our main cast slowly congregating together on the beach. And like you said, they all were sort of there in the crash, but this is the first time they're all turned towards a specific target. And now they all know no matter whether you think rescue's coming or if you're resolute on getting this transceiver or if you're just relishing the island like Locke, you're all transfixed on this one thing. And it's a grand unifying force. And it's such a cool moment, especially to finish off. This is what finishes off that monolithic 22-minute first act. And oh my God, this is the thing that takes you into commercial and says, I need to stay tuned through two minutes of ads and find out what happens after. It's a hell of an act break. It's just so cool to have the monster so prominent in this first episode, knowing that the monster is going to be such a prominent part of the show, especially in the end game. So I I love it. I, I We're going to talk even more. We've got some good feedback about the monster, but I just wanted to hear that because I, I love hearing like the cab sounds, but and it, it does have a mechanical quality to it. But like you say, there's just something so primal about it as as well i freaking love the monster i think that ultimately and even even more so reinforced after my last rewatch i love what they do with the monster i think that it's great i know a lot of people don't think so i'm really excited to get into all the monster stuff well um, speaking of music yes. let's uh, <laughs> let's get into sound number three or you mentioned it before but charlie pace wants to know if he might know him from somewhere Let, let's see uh his own little making small talk with kate on their way to the cockpit can i ask you something me? I'd be thrilled. I've been waiting. Have you ever met anywhere? No. That would be unlikely. Hmm. I look familiar, though, right? Yeah. <sighs> can't quite place it. No, I can't. Yeah. I think I know. You do? You all, everybody! You all, everybody! You never heard that song? I've heard it. I just don't know what the That's hell That's us. Has... Drive Shaft. Look, the ring. What? Second tour of Finland. You never heard of Drive Shaft? The band. Yeah, the band. You were in Drive Shaft. I am in Drive Shaft. I play bass. Serious? Yeah. Charlie. Track three, you know, I do backing vocals. friend Beth would freak. She loved you guys. Yeah. Give me Beth's number. I'll call her. I'd, I'd love to. Does she live nearby? Have you ever heard of Drive Shaft? You all, everybody. You all, everybody. we got to keep moving. They're good. They are good. Still together. We're in the middle of a comeback. <laughs> yeah. Well, the comeback's not going so well. Apparently, the Greatest Hits album is going to clean it up. Uh, I think, unfortunately, Charlie showed why he only does backing vocals <laughs> with that falsetto. Well, I mean, so I, I don't know what the history of You All Everybody is. Hopefully we can report on that in, in deeper detail when we get to the Charlie flashback a few weeks from now. Um, but I can't imagine, like, at this point, by the time that they were filming the pilot, 
did they have like the fully rendered you all everybody like written out and recorded and everything or did they like put it in dominic monahan's hands like you have a song called you all everybody and you basically (laughs) just say those words over and over again so whatever theme you want to sing to that there's a chance. This is your artist moment. John, uh, Dominic Monaghan is drive shaft. In that he moment. is. He is drive shaft. He's great. They're still great. Uh, yeah, they're still great. So the mountain and comeback. Uh, I also love the ring that he's brandishing. Uh, that second tour of Finland must have been like one for the ages, Josh. If he's still holding on to that ring like it's a Super Bowl ring. And not for nothing, too. I mean, Charlie uh, Char- Charlie says uh, he's he's part of Driveshaft, and Kate doesn't know who Driveshaft really is personally, but she knows that her friend Beth is a big Driveshaft fan, and, and Beth would be freaking out if she were here with Charlie Pace right now. But that's another lie, right? Like, that's like an on-the-fly on the, on the fly lie. Kate doesn't have a friend named Beth. Beth, who's a huge Driveshaft fan? There's no way. Yeah, I think she was trying to, like, I don't know, placate him. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of you. You're not the Jefferson Starship of Lost. Uh, She's just fr- trying to sound like a normal human being, like a civilian of the world. It's like when uh, when Steve Carell in The 40-Year-Old Virgin talks about bags of sand. Like, you're not <laughs> fitting in with people. We know you're the fugitive. Yeah, you don't I'm totally going to do that. If there's, if, there's a, if there's a piece of pop culture that I don't know, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, my friend Beth. Oh my God, she loves that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, totally get. I, I'll, I'll let her know that I just met the writer behind that. Big, big fan. All right, let's get into these next two sounds. And I know that we're going to want to explore um, in in both of them uh, some similar themes that are emerging. But one of the things that's great about Lost just generally, but especially the early going, is this collision of personalities and this collision of worlds. People who come from very, very different places, very different backgrounds, um, whether it's like their professions and their circumstances, their ethnicities, their races, the countries that they come from, the, the lives that they've led, and then in the way in which those lives, when you strip those details away at their core, end up being very similar. But it takes a long time to get to like that nerve center. So the angel hair pasta oh, no. <laughs> uh, of, of these people's lives. And at, at, the, at the start, very much, and even through much of the show, it's about those surface-level conflicts and why these people can't always get along so easily. And it's embodied really well in this sound clip, which comes to us from the second half of the pilot. Hey guys, come on. Hey! Break it up! Break it up! Get off! 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 The guy I saw next to him didn't Thank make you it. so much for observing my behavior. You don't think I saw him pull you out of line before we board Get off! Come on! Bring it! Stop! We found the transceiver, but it's not working. Can anybody help? Yes. I might be able to. Oh, great. Perfect. Let's trust this guy. Hey. We're all in this together, man. Let's treat each other with a little respect. Shut up, Lardo. Hey. Give it a break. Whatever you say, Doc, you're the hero. 
what I love about this is, again, it's, it's sort of like the inversion of expectations, which, which Lost does really well. We're going to see it, especially in a couple of episodes with Walkabout, or even later on in this pilot, where it turns out that Kate, you know, this uh, heroine that we think has been, you know, good and, you know, a uh, force of nature or uh, a force to get them out of nature, as it were, it turns out to be a criminal the entire time. I love the fact that I think in the outside world, the perceptions of these two guys would be completely flip-flopped, right? I talked about this in our preview show that this was, you know, even three years after 9-11, I do think there was a lot of Islamophobia hanging in the air. A little bit of nervousness when you go to the airport and you see someone like Saeed to the point where they mention he gets pulled out of line, even though he didn't do anything. I think it was because of Shannon, I believe, was the one that like reported his uh, bag that he left behind. During and yet Exodus. they still wind up together in the afterlife. I wonder if Saeed would think differently if he got to roll the tape and yeah. view that moment. Like it's it was just, you, Shannon. Such a meet cute, Josh. Such a meet cute. But it's so interesting because again, I feel like in the outside world people would sort of take Sora's point of view and villainize Saeed, but it's completely flip-flopped here. And again, it goes back to this idea of not looking back, whether you're sitting on a plane crash or you're just looking ahead in your life, that, you know, in here, everyone's sort of equal. As Hurley says, we're all in this together. And as a result, it's Sawyer who's in the wrong, and he's being villainized, and Saeed sort of becomes the hero of this episode. He's the one who fixes the transceiver. He's the one who helps get them up to to hear the message. So I, I just love the reversal of expectations from the role these people played in the outside world to the roles they play on the island. Well, I think also the thing is, is that the Oceanic 815 survivors are, to a person, basically, and correct me if I'm, if I'm overlooking someone, uh, are fundamentally good people. Uh, and like when they see a guy being like an out and out racist, uh, to, to this man who seems to be very helpful. He's already like, and, and you watch Saeed's actions through the first part of the pilot. Uh, you know, Jack gets the credit for being the leader pretty quickly, but Saeed's the guy who gets people mobilized and gets people going. Like from the, from the get go, Saeed is a, is a, is a very important person in this society. And who the hell is Sawyer other than this agitator who's going around starting fights? Uh, calling people names, uh, he and any higher ground. Like if there are like closet racists in the Oceanic Eight Fifteen background players, they're obviously all very quiet. The second that Sawyer starts mocking Hurley, it's like nobody's on board to be mocking Hurley. And like you even hear it in the in the clip, the moment that Sawyer says, "Shut up, Lardo." There's like gasps in the crowd, uh, or like this guy is such an asshole. Um, and it is, it's, it's, it's not only like the, the social commentary, uh, and I think that this was really important stuff in 2004. It's very important now as well, uh, but it's very important in, in, you know, just a, a few years removed from 9-11 and a lot of what was going on in America, as you sketched out already, and a lot of stuff that is really sadly still very relevant today uh, that is going on. I think it's, it's powerful to, to replay that, but it's also powerful to think about who Sawyer becomes and, and you know, the, the elements of redemption that he undergoes. But I think it'll be, it, it, it would be worthwhile to, like, track his shift. Like, when does Sawyer segue from being, like, out-and-out jag-off, uh, like, out-and-out, like, you know, like, racist blowhard to being somebody who is, like, uh, more of a Han Solo type? Um, right. I think that that's going to be uh, interesting to see where if there's like a notable point where Lost makes that pivot or if it's something that like is seamless enough to the point that we will even like not note the the transformation. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it may happen in, in a way 
that we're just kind of guided through and we we don't we don't fully get. Yeah, the Sawyer segue we'll keep a, a lookout on. But, I mean, you bring up a really interesting note that ties very nicely into another conversation that Sawyer and Saeed are going to have with some Kate thrown in for good measure as they're trekking up to get the transceiver up and running. Where did that come from? Probably Bear Village. How the hell do I know? About the bear the gun. I got it off one of the bodies. One of the bodies. Yeah, one of the bodies. People don't carry guns on planes. They do if they're a U.S. Marshal, sweet cheeks. There was one on the plane. How do you know that? I saw a guy lying there with an ankle holster, so I took the gun. Thought it might come in handy. Guess what? I just shot a bear! So why do you think he's a Marshal? Because he had a clip-on badge. I took that, too. Thought it was cool. I know who you are. You're the prisoner. I'm not what? You found the gun on a U.S. Marshal? Yes, I believe you did. You knew where it was because you were the one he was bringing back to the States. Those handcuffs were on you. That's how you knew there was a gun. That's, That's who you are, you son of be a be bitch. Be as suspicious of me as I am of you. you are the prisoner. Fine! I'm the criminal. You're the terrorist. We can all play a part. Who you want to be? Does anybody know how to use a gun? I think you just pull the trigger. <laughs> Don't use the gun. I want to take it apart. There's a button on the grip. Push that, it will eject the magazine. There's still a round in the chamber. Hold the grip. Pull the top part of the gun. I know you're tight. I'm not so sure. Girls like you. My girl's exactly like me. It's another example, though. I mean, it's the, the conversation that's happening here. It's obviously it's after the polar bear of it all. Uh, the polar bear is dead. Sawyer has presented. He has the gun. He's killed the thing. People are wondering I why shot the hell a is bear. Yeah, I shot a freaking bear. Uh, the bear from Bear Village. Uh, and people are weirded out about that. But the more pressing concern becomes: How does this guy, who has proven himself to be an untrustworthy schmuck, how does he have a gun? And this is alarming. And maybe we should defuse this situation. And it escalates those old tensions from earlier in the episode between Saeed and Sawyer and Sawyer has this great comment about fine I'm the prisoner you're the terrorist we can all play a part we can all play a role and it does speak to a lot of like the archetypal qualities to some of these characters that's at play in the early going of Lost and even within the context of the scene the idea of playing a role here comes Kate who plays a part. She plays the part of the the damsel in distress, the innocent person who doesn't know how to use a gun. I want to take it apart. I don't trust this guy. Somebody walk me through it. Kate knows how to use a gun. Kate knows exactly what she's doing. She's she's a bank robber. We're going to see that like 10 episodes from now. Uh, I think it's actually like 12 episodes from now, but something like that. Uh, and, and so she's playing a role as well. So uh, it's, it's just, it, it just all swirls together so well thematically for, for the long haul of Lost to have this stuff so established so early on is really, really great. Yeah, what I really like about it is, like you said, it's a really nice representation of how at the surface, 
these are all sort of archetypes that they're playing. You know, I'm pretty sure when the marketing was coming out and people were getting to know these characters, like, oh yeah, Sawyer, he's you know the southern asshole. Oh, here's Jin. Uh, you know, he's the he's the Korean asshole. Uh, you know, here's Hurley. He's the he's the comic fat guy. You know, it seemed like everyone had like two or three adjectives to describe them. When getting to know them through flash, flashbacks and their behaviors on the island really paint them as much more deep characters, and in some cases, completely subverted characters from what we know about them off-island. And it just shows how the characterization of Lost really is an iceberg. It's actually, oddly enough, I'm reminded of something Shakespearean from Sawyer's line. Uh, It's the infamous All the World's a Stage speech from As You Like It, where you have this guy who actually is sort of Sawyer-esque in uh, in Jayquees, who sort of is just lazing about, you know, uh, moping about the state of life, but... Also, when you think about the larger game that the Man in Black and and Jacob are playing to the point where Jacob brought these people to the island, these are all poor players who fruts, you know, fruts and struts their ways around the stage. And they're essentially, you know, uh, characters in this game back and forth between the two. And so in a manner of speaking, even though they're defying these roles, they are still playing these roles because they've been cast automatically from their name being inscribed in a lighthouse. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> who knew there was this mystery lighthouse somewhere on the island where everybody's name in this weird little cave thing as well. Uh, it's fun to think about how all of these people, or many of them, have already met Jacob, too. Yeah, just been been touched by not an angel, just an island man. Not all of them, uh, but but many of them uh, have, have been established to have met Jacob at some point in time already at this point uh speaking of jacob let's talk about jacob's successors uh it's it's you know successor plural it's very temporarily going to be jack shepherd before for the long haul it will be hugo reyes uh it's this next sound it's the first really meaningful extensive scene between jack and hurley and i think it's it's great because it says a lot about both of these characters let's let it rip you sure he's out? He's out. How do you know he won't wake up when you yank that thing up? I don't. Hey, guy, you awake? Yo, there's a rescue plane. We're saved. Yay! Yeah, he's out. What do you want? Look, it's unlikely that he'll regain consciousness. But the pain might bring him around, and if it does, I need you to hold him down. Uh, I'm not so good around blood. And don't look. Yeah, but I'm not so good around blood. Just do the best you can, okay? strips dude just hand me the strips i need to get this bleeding stuff i don't think i can oh, oh what what what's going on the strips, just hand me the strips give it to me hey don't even think about it hurley don't even think of- hurley hey damn it 
it's just so good. It's great. It's such a great moment. There, you know, he's working on the marshal. The marshal's passed out. He needs Hurley to pin the guy down. Hurley warns Jack, "I'm not so good with blood." Blood starts gushing out. Hurley passes out, and now the whole thing is just totally messed. Uh, uh, and it's it's so great. It's so emblematic of these characters of like Jack just like expecting so much from everybody ignoring what people are saying. Hurley is literally saying, like, listen, if this is a blood thing, I'm not really the guy that you want here. And Jack's like, no, you're going to be fine. I believe in you. And Hurley just does exactly as he promised. He's like, no, I'm definitely going to pass out the second I see that blood. Uh, but even just, like, the, the screaming at the guy, hey, guy, are you awake? Hey, let's, we're saved. We're rescued. There's just so much about his personality baked into that. So much pers- so much about their, their respective leadership styles. We know that they're both going to be essential leaders. And Jack, as a, as a leader, is a very front and center aspect of Lost for so much of it. But one of like the great sweet surprises of the ending of Lost is that Hurley ends up being the man in charge of the island. And I don't think that it's something that you really think to track on your first journey through Lost is Hurley as a leader. Uh, there are moments where like retroactively you look back and be like, wow, that's an incredible leadership moment for Hurley. But I just don't think it's something you pay attention to a ton. So I want to pay attention to that stuff as we go through because I think there's a lot of great moments of just leading by example and leading by personality and affability that Hurley does that in hindsight, of course he's the best leader of the group. Of course he's the right person to lead this island into a new age. Yeah, I mean, he is quite literally the bleeding heart of the island, and hopefully Hurley did not pass out from hearing that on the podcast. Yeah. Um, in terms of end game stuff, let's go to our penultimate sound here. Uh, let's hear it from our man, John Locke, who we joked about uh, spoiling the premise of Lost for Walt. And I think that's probably a pretty extreme way of, uh, of framing it, but he really does basically tell you what Lost is about in the very first episode. What is it like, checkers? Not really. It's a better game than checkers. You play checkers with your pop? No. I live in Australia with my mom. You have no accent. Yeah, I know. We move a lot. She got sick. She died a couple of weeks ago. You're having a bad month. I guess. Backgammon's the oldest game in the world. Archaeologists found sets when they excavated the ruins of ancient Mesopotamia. 5,000 years old. That's older than Jesus Christ. Did they have dice and stuff? But theirs weren't made of plastic. Their dice were made of bones. Cool. Two players. Two sides. One is light. One is dark. Walt. Do you want to know a secret? Yeah, and the secret is you're gonna you're gonna grow up really fast, way too fast. You're gonna age out of the show, and you're going to disappoint millions and millions of people back home because we'll never understand 
why you are this weird animal talking telepathic little cool dude. All right, let's play. <laughs> and go. Uh, uh this is I mean this is first off, this is the first time Locke talks in the episode, which right. I think is I really like the choice of restraint on the writer's part because he is so weird, it's somehow so mystical even in that first episode where he really is moving to the beat of his own drummer, even if we don't know exactly what's going on with him. But like you said, and this, I alluded to this before, you know, with the uh, all the world of stage speech that, I mean, Locke is essentially talking about how they're the stones and it's not, I feel like it's, it's, uh, you know, not coincidental that he talks about the dice being made of bones, that it is, you know, elements being derived from the people are being used to play this game. And again, that's sort of what the man in black and Jacob are going to be doing to the point where Locke himself is going to be either one of those stones or a die, depending on what you want to cast them as. But I'll admit my uh, enthusiasm in backgammon was definitely buoyed by this speech. I haven't played it in quite some time, but it might be time to, uh, to break it out and start pursuing it again, especially because it's not like checkers. I don't know that I've ever played backgammon before. I, I I know it's like a big competitive I love chess. Thing. I play I play chess a decent amount, but I, I I don't think that I've ever played backgammon. It's I I enjoy it. I think it's uh it's more tactical than you think it would be. I would also say a little savage of Locke, you know, when Walt says, "Hey, my mom died a month ago." His words <laughs> yeah. are, "I'm like, sorry." It's yeah. just, "Oh, yeah, you had a bad month." Yeah, yeah. It's like he's just like sucks, bro. Yeah, it's, I realize that he has no pity for other humans based God, on the yeah. life that he's had up to this point. But still, like, a little tact, Mr. Orange Peel, could be useful here. I think, you know, Locke feels like he was talked down to his entire life. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he talks to Walt the way that he does. Where he's like, we don't want to be talked down to. We just want to be, like, talked with. We want to be, like, included mm. in the conversation. Um, but that's, you know, the charitable explanation. The uncharitable explanation is John Locke is a little bit of a weird guy with boundary issues, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, at the very least, all of that is is very true. But he talks about the black and white stuff, and uh, he, as you mentioned, will be such an instrumental figure in that Venn diagram of the great war that is being played and waged in the background. And as we said in our inaugural Down the Hatch podcast, there is, like, from the very beginning, uh, in sort of, like, the, the skeletal notes of, like, where Lost is going and what are the core facets of Lost, uh, this idea that the island is this place where a great battle between good and evil is being waged. I'm paraphrasing. That's not an exact quote. Um, but that's really the, the real extent of information that we'll ever get about what the island is where it comes from and what it's all about. It's really as basic as that. So it's right here front and center on the show. And I appreciate that about the, um, the pilot. Mm. Um, let's Speaking close out. Yeah. Let's close out the sound section with the way that the pilot ends. And this is gonna be a long clip. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna turn it over to the lost gods, uh, for a moment here as Mike and I enjoy a nice water break. I assume, uh, we're just going to let this clip roll. Cause it is, this is an iconic scene, and there's a lot of iconic scenes to choose from from the Lost Pilot, but for the purpose of what this segment represents, it's just like the sounds of Lost, listening to Lost. Uh, it's hard, hard for me to imagine a better, uh, a better scene to pick than this one that comes right from the end of the episode. Let's just play it in full. Oh. Hey! We've got a bomb! Mayday! Mayday! 
What is that? Feedback. Feedback from what? What would do that? I don't know. I'll tell you what would do that. This guy not fixing the radio. The thing doesn't even work. No, 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 no. It's not broken. We can't transmit because something else is already transmitting. Transmitting from where? What? Somewhere close. The signal's strong. Somewhere close? You mean on the island? That's great. Maybe to the survivors. From our plane? How would What they kind even... of transmission is it? It could be a sat phone, maybe a radio signal. Can we listen to it? Let me get the frequency first. Hold on. There's no transmission. Shut up! The rescue party. It has to be. The French! The French are coming! I've never been so happy to hear the French! <laughs> I never took French. What is she saying? Does anyone speak French? She does. No, I don't. What? What the hell are you I, talking about? You spent a year in Paris? Drinking, not studying. Iteration 7, 2, 9, 4, 5, 3, Okay, one. what's that? Oh, no, 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 what? The factories are dying. How much time do we have? Not much. I've heard you speak French. Just listen to this. Listen I to can't. It. You speak French or not, because that would be nice. Iteration 1, 7, That voice is weird. Nine, what is that? 4, 5, it's, it's repeating. She's fine. What? It's a loop. Iteration. It's repeating the same message. It's a counter. The next number will end. 533. Does anyone know what the hell he's talking about? It's a running counter the number of times the message is repeated. It's roughly 30 seconds long, so... How long... Don't forget to carry the one cheat. She's saying... Please. She's saying, please help me. Please, come get me. Or she's not. You don't even speak Let French. her listen. Shut up, man. Where's the battery? The battery. I'm alone now. Um, on the island alone. Please, someone, come. The others, they're... They're dead. It, it killed them. It, it killed them all. That was good. 16 years. What? 16 years. And five months, that's the count. What the hell are you talking about? The iterations. It's a distress call. A plea for help, a mayday. If the count is right, it's been playing over and over for 16 years. Someone else stranded here? Maybe they came for them. Someone came. Why is it still play? Guys. Where are we?
like your first like punch in the mouth to the closing credits noise, right? Like yeah, and, and throw sand in your face at the same time for good measure. <laughs> yeah, classic move. Oh, uh, I mean, this is. It's just so game-changing in so many ways. We've had so many things thrown our way over the course of these two episodes. Between the plane crash, between the monster. But now, not only do you find out, you know, when they're thinking they're on the precipice of rescue, not only is there someone else possibly on the island, but this is someone who has been broadcasting a message for... A ce- celebrating essentially the message is celebrating it's sweet 16 right now right uh, saying you know basically the other people that i'm with are dead so, you know the security system or whatever killed it so they're in much more danger than they thought they were on top of any chance of rescue becoming very nigh as they're about to uh broach in the next episode yeah so i mean like it, it ends on that intense level of dread and mystery and literally you know summed up in in charlie's very famous line of guys where are we uh but it's also it's it's just great character moments the urgency of it shannon being forced like she volunteered She's not for, worthless you know she volunteered for the trek and like this is like put up or shut up time and like at first she like really is too scared to do it and then it's like push come to shove time it's like you gotta speak french you have to do something here and she does a great job and even boone her biggest detractor like once like the gravity of what he's hearing is settling in he like even he is able to allow like good job shannon you got that you did a good job and like saeed is there just like silently doing crazy math uh in his in his brain and just showing off his intelligence um and Sawyer's just still being an asshole even through all of that but eventually even th- this big talker in James Sawyer Ford is forced to shut up because what they're hearing is insane and very very bad uh, and portentous for for their odds on the island if it's true that somebody has been here for more than 16 years that is awful <laughs> <laughs> That's like the worst news. Um, so it's just it's it's such a killer note to close out the pilot on. Um, like you said, there's already so much that happens over the course of these two hours of lost, these first two hours of lost. But to end in this way, uh, for me, like I, I remember watching that episode and being like, yeah, I'm not going back to astronomy. <laughs> That's just not happening for me. So, and also, the voice, not obviously not Rousseau's voice, but the guy who, the automated voice repeating the iterations, is that our pal Lloyd Braun? I wonder. <laughs> I it wonder. sounds like the previously on Lost guy, so I'm assuming that they sort of double dipped with Lloyd here. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I'm not. I don't know for sure, but uh, we could get we could get uh, we could get we could get the Ben behind the curtain if you could look into that for us. We would love to get that detail. But it sounds like him. Um, it's just such a great ending. It's such a great yeah. ending, and I think an appropriate ending for the eight sounds segment of this uh, first recap podcast here on down the hatch which is uh well past the point of crisis <laughs> at this point where we are just going deeper down the hatch i think that, again there's just a ton that we want to set up here right at the top of this journey um before we push in deeper to the podcast let's take a moment to thank our sponsors for this episode of down the hatch mike those are our friends at amazon originals and the new series carnival row that's coming to the streaming service on August 30th. Mike, is Carnival Row on your radar? 
Uh, I've heard a bit about it. It does star my cousin, Orlando Bloom. Also, uh, <laughs> yes. a, a, a man who uh, is very known to, to Dominic Monaghan, a lost cast member, used yeah. to uh, serve in a, an, a different band of gentlemen once upon a time together. Yes, well, Orlando Bloom is starring in a new fantasy uh, world. This is Carnival Row. It's a one-hour fantasy drama series. Orlando Bloom is starring as is Cara Delevingne. The series is set in a Victorian fantasy world filled with mythological immigrant creatures whose exotic homelands were invaded by the empires of man. They struggle to coexist with humans, forbidden to live, love, or fly with freedom. Orlando Bloom, Mike's cousin, plays Rycroft Philostrate, also known as Philo, a police inspector investigating a string of gruesome murders threatening the uneasy peace of the row. Cara Delevingne, who is not related to either of us, plays Vignette Stonemoss, a fairy refugee who flees her war-torn homeland to come to the Berg, where she must contend not only with rampant human prejudice against her kind, but with the secrets that have followed her to this new land. Sounds like she wouldn't get along with Sawyer, uh, would be uh, would be my guess mike yeah i would say that i mean i don't know maybe sometimes opposites attract you know he was able to find juliet maybe he was able to find uh you know his own his own soulmate in vignette depending on when they got candy from the vending machine and a timeline in the future yes but even in darkness in the world of carnival row hope lives as this human detective and fairy rekindle their dangerous affair despite an increasingly intolerant society. So come together on August 30th when Carnival Row hits Amazon Prime Video. That's Labor Day weekend dropping in its entirety. Check out Carnival Row. Um, Mike, let's get into some feedback here. Uh, We got a lot of it, and we have made it now over two hours into the podcast without patting ourselves on the back too, too much. But the this is the fifteen sixteen others section, which we dedicate to feedback. And I think just off the off the top, uh, the first thing we have as other number one is holy crap. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast, it would seem. I hope they're still listening to it at this point, that we're not so dumb that people have decided that it wasn't a worthy investment. But, I mean, we are positively overwhelmed overwhelmed by the amount of support that we have gotten. You know, when when Josh and I came up with this idea, we obviously – you know, uh, have sort of an echo chamber of people who love Lost just like us, but we had no idea who'd be going down the hatch with us. And it turns out so many of you have voiced your assent for going down the hatch with us. Some of you have done it many, many times before. Some of you, it's, it's the first time you're going back since the way the series ended. No matter what iteration it is, whether it's, you know, 17,352 or two, we are so so incredibly happy that you'll be joining us and hopefully you'll keep joining us you know through everything we're talking about with the show obviously if you're listening to us talk for you know two plus hours about two hours of of a show you know how much we absolutely love this and it really just reflected to me josh how much the show even nearly a decade after this episode aired has had such a profound effect on people not only with their television taste but also coming together as well as TV viewers, it's almost like we were, you know, alone running around in the TV landscape trying to find that new show. And it was the plane crash of Oceanic Flight 815 that 
brought us all together to watch this harrowing group of survivors try to make their way through this very confusing maze time after time. It's just crazy. I mean, uh, I've covered I've covered some very big shows on post show recaps in the past: Game of Thrones, Westworld, Walking Dead, uh, and there there's definitely like a lot of shows that like we've done on post show recaps, a lot of podcasts that I'm, I'm deeply, deeply proud of, and put a ton of work into, and loved that feedback relationship that we enjoyed on those shows. But I'm I'm really struggling to think of a podcast that we've launched since the birth of post show recaps back in 2014 um, that landed with sort of like the level of impact that this one did like as soon as we dropped down the hatch like the immediate response from people was really really exciting we've heard from so many people people who've like expressed their own personal stories with lost and what it has meant to them as they've worked through grief in their own lives or just the milestones that it's guided them through uh relationships that it's helped them build um people who have who have written in offering their help uh like so many people that like we can't accept all of your help because it's just it's just impossible it's it's so touching um there have been other podcasts who have who have been really kind uh in the lost space who've who've welcomed us into that world uh joanna robinson of the storm had a really nice tweet about us when we launched uh the folks over at previously on lost which is at lost rewatch pod on twitter they shouted us out as well we've heard from people from you know as far away from us in new york as new zealand there's people in britain people in germany people all over the world um most people who have uh familiarity with lost already a few people who do not uh and we have we have cautioned those people that this is probably not the podcast for you but there are some people out there like the amazing sammy kappa who mm-hmm. is uh, an, great an, incredi- artist. an incredible artist who who does great work in the survivor space if you're a survivor fan and if you're listening to this good chance that you are uh she she wrote to us is like is this a good podcast to listen to if i haven't watched much of lost but i don't mind spoilers and i'd kind of be interested in just like getting like a little bit of like a a taste of what lost is about and, like if that's you and you're this far in to you know two hours and change into the podcast obviously i think that this is a place for you uh mm-hmm. you know if this if this is how you want to experience lost it's not like the way that i would recommend it but i, I we're, we're trying to do this with you in mind as well um but we just have so many people with so many different appetites and so many different interest levels in the show who are reaching out to us uh that you know we are i mean i think we're in a pretty dangerous situation where we are at risk of triggering the 108 minute crisis <laughs> basically every single week we will probably have to revisit those terms at a certain point because <laughs> our feedback sections are always going to be very robust, I think. Yeah, which, again, which is great. I love that people are thinking about this you know, on the same complicated hurly bird's eye view that we are. Again, it means that we're all in this together, though. Yes, unfortunately, I don't, unfortunately, you know, the Carlton and, and uh, uh, you know, they, they didn't extend the numbers past 108. We might have to come up with a new set of numbers because otherwise that frozen donkey wheel is going to get hot real quick from the number of times we're turning it. We will adjust on the fly if we have to. You know, this podcast, much like the Smoke Monster, may morph uh, the the further down the hatch we go. We have laid out the blueprint on the Blastor map of what it is we want to do here. But just by necessity of like, you know, this this podcast may be bigger than we realized. So <laughs> there are things that we may have to adjust on the fly. This is the uh, the definition of uh, what did you call this before? A first island problem. Yeah. Uh, like this is a very nice problem to have. We have we've gotten so many really nice letters from 
people uh, that we can't we can't read them all, but we have a lot of letters that like on our worst days where life has has chewed us up and spat us out into a tree like the smoke monster and the pilot, we can turn to some of the really nice things that you have written into us uh, that that are really validating for for the work that we do, and and we just appreciate it so much. And just to shout out some of the people who've written in, uh, Daniel, no last name, uh, Alex, uh, Jared Mounts, who said nice things about my cat. He said my cat's Aww. waiting for me in a church in the afterlife, which I'm a, as a Jew, I feel like what am I going to be doing there? But I'll go if Pardo's there. Uh, Jeff Bamberger, aka the hashtag Mug, Bobby Marassa, Gail Grant. Lots of really nice people writing in with really nice messages. So just uh, first other off the board, we just want to salute you and everybody else who we're going to talk about in the feedback and everyone who we didn't get a chance to talk about in the feedback section coming up just because there's so much. It's so nice to have you all along for mm-hmm. the ride. And this is the reason why we're doing the podcast. Yeah. Uh, again, to touch on a point that Josh briefly referred to, I know uh, he and I both have problems with anxiety and you know self-deprecation and i know i was nervous to launch this project as much as i love loss i know a lot of people love loss too and i want to make sure i had this little turn up head of a podcast and that we take good care of it you know and i hope we've been doing a good job so far i've been having a lot of fun josh i know you have as well i hope everyone out there has as well and hopefully this pretends well for many many more podcasts in the future so thank you honestly deep down from the pit of our hearts of the island for you know your kind words so far and your ratings it really has been an outpouring of love that has just been so unexpected yet so life-affirming at the same time all right so with that said let's go to other number two which talks about what we got wrong in the first episode <laughs> yeah, of our let's podcast. take a big swerve there <laughs> Uh, Stefan has written into us here on Post Show Recaps, and Stefan is somebody who is uh, who is deep in the Lost Trenches, a mystery person in the Lost Trenches. Uh, Stefan is responsible for uploading the official Lost podcast to YouTube, so thank you, Stefan, for making sure that that was not lost uh, to time and for some of the information that Stefan wrote in about some of what we said in uh, in our first podcast about some of the behind-the-scenes details. Stefan writes that the Forrest Whitaker thing Thing about him almost being cast as Sawyer, as far as he knows, is a hoax. Uh, Stefan says, I've spent hours trying to find the original source for this. Somebody just wrote this on the IMDb trivia page or something like that, and others copied it without checking. Damn! Uh, I- I'd like to live in the world where Forrest Whitaker was almost Sawyer. Uh, Foiled so- by Flock News, once again. <laughs> Flock News. Uh, Stefan writes, the Jorge Garcia casting info might be nitpicky, but he didn't audition for Sawyer. They just didn't have any material written for him, and they just gave him some early Sawyer lines so that he could at least read something. And Hurley wasn't really written for him. Hurley existed from the very early days and was more of a plot device because he was supposed to be killed off in the pilot. He just evolved into Hurley over time. So the original genesis of that character is uh, much like the Michael Keaton Jack myth. Uh, you know, myth is somebody who was not going to make it out of the pilot. So to entertain the notions, the universes where both Jack and Hurley were bumped off in the pilot, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there was something from, you know, there's an oral history of the pilot uh, that I'm sure will be in the show notes. But I believe there was something where Jorge Garcia was saying that, like, uh, this script referred to Hurley specifically wearing a red shirt and him not being a trekker. He had no idea what that meant. He just thought he was wearing a red shirt. But no, he was supposed to be, I don't know, maybe killed off on the beach. I'm not entirely sure. But thank the island's gods that that did not happen because... You know, having Jack survive was obviously necessary for the show, but having Hurley die in the first episode would have been 
crushing, assumingly because that's probably how he would have died. It would have been too much. It would have been awful. Stefan also notes that Saeed wasn't created specifically for Navian Andrews. The character existed basically from day one to play the role of the guy who's good with technology and who can fix things. And Locke wasn't really written for Terry Oakland. Well, he sure seems like he was. Uh, so listen, you know, there's a lot of urban legends in the the Lost universe, and uh, we will we will try to get this stuff right. But you know, it's much like the island, there's 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 a lot of mystery that abounds. Can we say uh, that all parts were written stories. for Forrest Whitaker? Yes, every single character, including Kate and Claire. <laughs> and Vincent. Uh, yeah, Vincent the dog, uh, Vincent the ghost dog, uh, was going to be Forrest Whitaker. Could you just imagine the smoke monster coming and 15 Forrest Whitakers on the beach staring off into the forest? I can. I'm imagining it now, and it is wonderful. Staring off into the forest. Whitaker. Yeah, the, the forest, and all the trees are Forrest Whitaker faces on trees. Oh, my God, yeah. Well, I think as we go, uh, the the characters that we are going to meet along the way, like some of like, the guest stars and everybody who who Forrest Whitaker uh, would have done like a really great job with some of these uh, these players like in flashbacks I think that that should be a recurring uh, thing oh yeah like, like, all the DJ Qualls roles give it to yeah, Forrest Whitaker yeah especially on like the the light weeks keep us uh, keep us uh, honest about our Forrest Whitaker yeah let takes. us we'll, we'll see the forest for the trees in that in those weeks alright all right. this is other number three uh, a first watch review this is from Hillary uh, Hillary wrote in and said since both of you are reporters can you give a short review on the pilot as if you were watching it for the first time? I love reading online TV recaps, and it all started with Lost, so I'd be curious to hear what you think your hot takes might have been from the first watch. So this is a tough exercise, Mike. Yes. But I but but I guess yeah, I guess one of the this, this is an interesting exercise because this will illustrate whether or not it would have been a good idea to do this as a spoiler-free podcast, right? So like we're supposed to like look at the pilot and what would what would we have said about it if we weren't able to talk about the rest of Lost, if we could only talk about these first two hours, like how would you describe this episode and and what would you what would you say about it? What, where would you begin? I'd say I'd call it Survivor on heroin, to be honest. I would say that this is a story about people, you know, Survivor tells the story of people brought together to, to build a society. And here, there these 15 people are thrust into their own Survivor-like scenario, except getting eliminated from the game has much deadlier consequences. Uh, you know, the, the show's host gets killed halfway through. Uh, you have your your setting of personalities, but... The camera turns back on the on the contestants when they realize that the sh- the show that they're a part of uh, is a game in a much larger sense of the meaning. Uh, so I guess I would have compared a lot to Survivor, which you know was big in my mind at the time and still is big, but how it is completely different and has much more literal life or death circumstances. You know, so. Uh... I, I've told my story about how I encountered Lost now, and I, and I watched that second half of the pilot uh, when it aired. And one of my next courses of action at that time, I was a sophomore at Syracuse University, and I was living with three other guys in uh, in a four-person suite in Del Plain Hall, for any of you Syracuse University alums out there. Uh, and I converted them all to being Lost fans, and Lost became our show. And like for my college friends and, and me, like this, this was the thing. I, I don't really remember how I saw sold it to them other than being like 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 t- like strapping them down and forcing them to watch on on a Friday night or whatever like if we had DVR'd oh, you, it and recorded it you pulled the old something. Carl and put him in just a room and forced their eyes open but I have uh and he's appeared on the podcast in the past 
uh, on on uh, when we were doing the Lost Lives iterations of our Lost coverage on Post Show Recaps, the great Coconut Pete. Uh, he is coming down to to visit with his with his wife, who's a great friend of mine, and their kids this weekend. So maybe I'll I'll try and just like record a quick like little five minute thing if he can remember how I convinced him to watch mm. Lost because I think that I think that that would accomplish what Hillary is asking from us here. So I will hopefully remember that or at least I will get him to to tell me the story if we don't record it. So TBD. Uh, I'll, I'll circle Thank back. Thank you for shrugging way. off your part of the question and making yeah. me completely sweat under having to come up with an impromptu review. No, you did great. I think like Survivor on heroin sounds about right. I mean, that was sort of the idea of what they were what they were going for, right? Yeah. But none of my none of my friends were Survivor people. Uh, I did convince them of that as well. Uh, yeah. Some of them. It, to, it's to like it's like lost, but not on heroin. Yeah, I think that's probably how I sold it. <laughs> uh, all right, other number four. Does the episode? Hold up. And we had a couple of people asking different variations of this, including Ishe Marciano. And if I'm mispronouncing anybody's name, please write in. Tell me correct pronunciations. I want to make sure we get this right, especially if you're going to be writing in throughout the the, the long term of the podcast. Um, but Ishe writes in and says, I was expecting the special effects of the crash to be really bad, but I was pleasantly surprised by how it looked. How do you guys think this holds up? 15 years later. So let's let's take that first from like the the visual perspective. Um, this was something that Joe Garfine was talking with me about in the bonus episode of Down the Hatch that we did uh, after our introductory after episode and before this first recap, where she talked about like, you know, there's no cell phones on the show. So like, you know, except if it's in flashback, like you don't really have to live in the world of technology. And so the fact that people are stripped fairly bare, unless it's like fashion choices, like you note with Sawyer, like it's going to, it, it's going to look look relatively modern like it look mm-hmm. it, it, it will still look like it's it's pretty close to present day how about like from uh you know the aesthetics but also like the the effects wise maybe the polar bear isn't so great um but does does the did the rest of it play pretty well for you i would say so i mean maybe it was the environment that i was watching it in but again that the the scene where we get to see the plane crash from kate's perspective is jaw-dropping still from my perspective it, it's it's a feat in filmmaking even 15 years after the fact and like you said we've also avoided a lot of and that's another advantage of you know them crashing on an island is because they're not going to be talking a lot about the outside world uh you know it's going to be a while before we get to the red Sox aren't going to win the world series uh and that changes very quickly after you know lost uh lost references that so we haven't we don't really have a lot of those moments and i think that is able to sort of keep this as a plane in a bottle in a manner of speaking, that we are uh, able to essentially crystallize this in a moment that exists in all time periods, much like it will over the course of season five. Uh, We also got this from Nate Meyer, who wrote in and said, if Lost was made in 2019, what do you think would be different? Because of the lack of electronics on the island and the plane, not much would need to change about these episodes. But Boone would have been using a smartphone rather than a flip phone to try to call for help. Do you see Boone as an iPhone guy or an Android kind of guy? Uh, I feel like Boone is probably an iPhone guy, right? Like, I feel like he's just like Coca-Cola classic, or at least he tries to be. Yeah, uh, Um, Boone's totally the guy that, like is going for the latest iPhone and he's trying to figure out like the dongles uh you know trying to fumble through them on the plane ride to be able to to listen to his music but I feel like with the story of like you know him trying to you have to fall in line with like his mother's clothing company I I do feel like he's a he's a relatively good guy when it's looking out for his family but he does seem like someone who wants to be on the up and up in terms of technology especially if he needs to look up all these YouTube videos about how to do a tracheotomy 
Yeah, I, but what else would be different? I mean, I think the fact that like some of these people would have smartphones uh, if they if they've got like data and roaming, uh, if they've got like a really great plan, perhaps they could field a phone call from the middle of nowhere. Well, I do wonder uh, if cell phones existed, how many more incidents would have occurred considering all the electro yeah. ele- considering all the electromagnetic stuff that's going on on the island. Also, the lock scene might be different because Walt wouldn't ask if it was like checkers; he'd ask if it was like Candy Crush or something. Is, it, is this <laughs> yeah. like is this like Fortnite? Yeah, yeah, this is like Fortnite, right? It's like I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, who am I kidding? John Locke would know exactly what Fortnite was. Oh, it's John. Uh, John Locke would be like teabagging all these people as he was playing in his wheelchair in Fortnite in a flashback. Is that a thing that you say in relation to Fortnite? Well, I, I, don't... I, feel, I feel like that's back in the Halo days, right? Where you would like uh, tap, you know, R3 to crouch and that looks like you're teabagging someone. Yikes, Mike. <laughs> okay. I had no idea that this was a thing. What? No, I really didn't. I'm not much of a gamer guy. It's uh, unexpected. Oh, boy. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are the main ones. I mean, I don't know. Maybe uh, with Jack, you know, considering all the push against modern medicine these days, maybe some of these people would refuse Jack's care, uh, asking instead for their certain products in their suitcase to apply to their wounds and hope that they cure overnight. Yeah, I think everyone's bringing a more robust med kit as they are as they are traveling. Also, also, I do not think that blade is making it on the plane at all that Jack uses to uh, try to heat up and, and cauterize the wound. I think the the big uh, suitcase of knives that John Locke is going to check in. I wonder if uh, if if those are going to make the cut as well. Speaking of John Locke, let's get into other number five. One is Locke and one is Dark. Uh, this is from Dallin Servo who writes in and says, around season three, I think was when Damon and Carlton started mentioning that there was a scene in the pilot that is going to play a huge role in the series, and a lot of people started to guess that it was the Locke light versus dark scene. Do you think it was a mistake of Damon and Carlton to hint at this scene so early on in the run of the series instead of allowing the audience to come in on their own? Um, what do you think about that, Mike? Uh, mm. the, the fact that people are kind of like pointing to the pilot, that, that Damon and Carlton are pointing to the pilot, there's something in here that's really important foundationally. Does that strike you as a mistake or does that strike you as like, I don't know, like an interactive relationship with the audience? I think it's probably more the second thing. Well, remember that much like a lot of pilots, this was filmed without the knowledge that this would be picked up to series. You know, I feel like they, they hopefully had, uh, you know, some some sway with the network that they might get picked up, especially considering the amount of dough that was spent on this. Something we didn't mention, um, partially due to the aforementioned plane crash, is up until, I believe, Boardwalk Empire, this was the most expensive pilot ever created. Uh, I think one of the uh, people, Mark Worthington, I think one of the production designers, said this is essentially a $180 million picture done in eight days for this episode alone, which is just ridiculous in a non-Game of Thrones world in terms of the television landscape. I personally am fine with it because, again, if you're under the the guise of, okay, we don't know if we're getting picked up to series, I feel like you shouldn't really err on the side of caution in that regard. And is it overbearing thematically, all things considered? Maybe, but I'm sort of fine with that. And in a show that's going to become increasingly cryptic with its details, having something underlined and bolded in the very beginning just gives... Even the uh, the audience members that are paying the least amount of attention to at least pay attention to that scene and know that's going to be a lingering, lingering thread throughout all six seasons of the show. Uh, Dallin Servo also uh, is keeping track so far, at least, of the amount of times that Hurley says the word dude uh, on Lost. And so far after the two-part pilot, we are up to five dudes. Okay. Uh, five- 
Five dudes from Hurley. I would like it if, Dallin, if you could uh, continue tracking uh, the Hurley dude count, much like the the Judd man count from uh, the Evolution of Strategy chapter uh, 11, uh, Judd Sergeant uh, man count is, uh, if we could do that as like, this is like our, our lost equivalent of that, I think would be fun. Any other ones like, uh, do we get a Walt count? A Walt count could be fun. Uh, I mean, it'll, it'll cease. It won't, it won't be series long, uh, to count the, the Waltz. I think Dallin mentioned counting all of the times Sawyer says, son of a bitch, which I guess I don't associate with Sawyer so much as I associate with Jack Bauer. Yeah. Uh, but if, 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 I think like counting, uh, like tracking Sawyer's nicknames would be yes. fun. I think if somebody we, wants yeah. to go and do that. I think we need the, like the nickname Rolodex and I think we need the Waltometer to happen. Yeah. It's, it's, it's right into us. Down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com with your suggestions for things to track. And if there's anything you want to volunteer for, uh, let us no. Uh, other number six. This comes to us courtesy of Brendan Fitzpatrick, uh, who cooked up a, a, a playlist on Spotify that's inspired by Lost, some music from Lost, uh, other songs that are, you know, kind of funny in connection to Lost that are worth listening to. We'll put that in the show notes, uh, alongside some other links as well, if anyone wants to check that out on Spotify. But Brendan writes in and says, Naveen Andrews is low-key going to be the MVP of the Season 1 rewatch. I can already tell just from Pilot 1 and 2. Uh, what do you think? Uh, watching Saeed back here, Mike Bloom, do you think that Saeed is going to end up as an MVP of the Season 1 rewatch? Ben Martell adds to this. Uh, do we think that Saeed is one of the most underrated or forgotten characters on Lost? I mean, it's tough to say, like, forgotten. I would say that certain elements of his plot progression were forgotten. I alluded to this before, but I think that a lot of people, when they think of Saeed, don't really think of these first three seasons where, again, we're seeing a bit of his torrid romance and the more emotionally sensitive aspects of this guy who, on the surface, is someone who tortured people for a living. And that's what I really loved about Saeed's character. I agree with Brendan. I think Naveen Andrews puts in fantastic work. Not to spoil too much by 23 points. He's definitely in the MVP conversation for this episode. So I'm looking forward to seeing Saeed now, honestly, before the other shoe drops out of the tree and we start to get into more, essentially, post-Nadia death Saeed, where he's lost both of his loves, he's cold-hearted, he's doing these tasks for Ben Linus, then he tries to kill itty-bitty Ben Linus, then he dies, then he gets resuscitated, and then he gets blown up. It's a very weird track for Saeed in the latter half of the series, but I'm going to cherish the first half of the series because I think he's his characterization is fantastic at that point. Other number seven is a game of what if life and death edition. Some people had some questions about some alternate realities that could have played out on Lost if things had been different in the pilot, beginning with Tyler Fredrickson, who writes in and says, what would the show be like if the pilot didn't get eaten by the black smoke? Uh, probably a lot of friction between Seth and Jack over who knows more about flying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it does present an interesting leadership conundrum, though, because, I mean, you would assume that if you were on a plane, you'd look to the pilot for leadership, right? But they're technically not on the plane. He still is. Well, the question would be, is he still in a leadership position, even though he has absolutely no idea what's going on? The only you know information he can provide is like, yeah, I tried the best I could, and they're not going to find us anytime soon. I do think it'd be a bit of jockeying for leadership. 
But I'm pretty sure Seth Norris is going to acquiesce to Jack sooner rather than later and maybe just spend the rest of his time maybe pulling a rose, holding his wedding ring that Frank Lapidus points out he wears on each and every flight that he makes. Maybe he'd sort of pull a Cindy and try to like explore the rest of the island to see if he can find help and then get kidnapped by the others. Uh, I, I think that he would not I, – I do not think they'd be falling under the leadership of Seth anytime soon. Yeah, I think that Seth would very quickly rise to the top of the ranks of most hated uh, survivor of the crash of Oceanic Flight 815. You'd just be blamed by everybody. It's like, yeah. you crashed the plane, bro! You yeah. had one job! Yeah, he. I mean, it'd be an interesting redemption story, right? Because he would try to help. Maybe he would be the one instead of Boone to like get the beach craft down to try to contact on the radio. Like He would be the biggest people pleaser because he feels like he'd be perennially blamed for the fact that even though, again, it was not him that crashed the plane... He was the one that was uh, left holding the bag, metaphorically speaking. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit to to other uh, to the next other, uh, we had people wondering what Greg Grunberg's history with J.J. Abrams was like. Because I don't know how many people know this. Greg Grunberg, most recognizable outside of being the pilot on Lost, uh, as Matt Parkman from Heroes. He's you know the guy who plays the pilot in this first episode. J.J. Uh, Abrams is the director of this first episode. You may notice that these two people work together quite a bit, and that is because they have known each other forever. They've known each other since they were very, very young kids. They've been friends for their entire lives. They made movies together as kids, and now they make movies and TV shows together as very accomplished adults. Uh, and Greg Grunberg has been in basically, I think, every single JJ project in some capacity. He has a, a voice cameo in the first Star Trek movie of the JJ Abrams Star Trek movies. He was a series regular in both Felicity and Alias. He has a bit role in Mission Impossible 3. He snapped Wexley in the new Star Wars trilogy. Uh, if you if you if you remember Snap Wexley's a fighter pilot. Uh, so Greg Grunberg and J.J. Abrams, they go way back. And I think that if Greg Grunberg had survived, if Seth Norris had survived this first episode, gotta imagine a real meaty arc uh, that is written for him by J.J. Abrams. Or do you think J.J. embarrasses him and like writes a bunch of flashbacks for Seth that like flashes back to <laughs> embarrassing yeah. moments from Greg Grunberg's childhood? Yeah, I think it's possible. Just, like, I will totally, also say, yeah. I love that J.J. Abrams is to Greg Grumberg as Tim Burton is to Johnny Depp. He just found that guy <laughs> he's going to put in each and every project he does. Yeah, he's his guy. He's his number one boy. Um, let's talk about some monster motivations, the next other. We had a bunch of people asking about that, including Scott Ring, who writes in, I need to ask in the full context of the show, why did the man in black want to kill the pilot only at that time? Daniel Brennan also writes in, based on what we know about the man in black, how can we best understand his slash the smoke monster's actions in the pilot, namely introducing himself to the survivors by causing a ruckus on night one and murdering the pilot the following day. Uh, ben Martell describes the smoke monster as so demonstrative in his first appearance to, uh, to, to everybody in the pilot. How do you uh, understand the motivations? Clearly, at the time of the writing of the show, they weren't thinking about it from right. the perspective of this monster as a character. Uh, but one of the fun things that we're trying to do here is like we're retconning a little bit, right? So like knowing what we know about the monster ultimately and that this is an ancient entity that wants to escape the island at all costs. Why do you think he's bashing these people so hard on their first couple of nights? Yeah, so I'm of two minds here. 
One of them is the more simplistic explanation, which is that this is one big monster flex. This is the man in black wanting to prove how big of a threat it is, almost maybe to scare off Jacob's candidates from going further into the island. So he's going to, since he can't touch the candidates, he might touch this person who isn't a candidate and just sort of throw him around. It might be angry at at Seth for unintentionally bringing these people here because I think this, it's a quote from like the incident or something. The man in black does not like more people here. He does not want more protectors on the island. He wants to leave the island. Uh, the one that I've sort of wrote in my head that I would love to get your thoughts on, Josh, is I wonder if the man in black is purposely setting himself up as, you know, this big villain to test people's natures. We see one of the big instigators of this conflict between Jacob and the man in black and across the sea is that the man in black fundamentally believes that people fight, destroy, and corrupt I wonder if the Man in Black says, like, if I become a common enemy of the people, how violent will they get both with me and each other and prove inherently how evil people are to their core? So essentially, it's sort of of serving as bait to see if these dogs are going to sniff at and jump on this meat pile. Well, the other thing to consider, too, and I think it's it's a conversation we can have to some degree throughout the, you know, the podcast series, especially if people write in and keep wanting to talk about it. But I think that the the story is going to move us in other directions. Um, But we'll talk about it certainly closer to season five is people are going to start traveling through time. (laughs) You know, people are going to start like going to different periods of time in the history of the island and people from Oceanic 815, like Sawyer and and all those people, they're going to spend so much time in the seventies, but they're going to go as far back as when the statue was still intact. Uh, So who knows how, how far back they go. We we know that they, they go to a a future point beyond this moment in time uh, in, in the lost timeline that they'll, they'll, you know, flash forward at one point to something that's closer to the Ajira flight. So they're going to be hopping all over time. But if you think about like some of those points in the past, the monster seems to know so much about what's going on 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 the island. You know, it seems to have this sort of uh, this this every man everywhere quality about him, and and may know just from like the island gossip of like overhearing like after like the moment where John Locke goes into the others' camp in like the forties or whatever it is, uh, and meets with Richard Alpert there. The monster may be able to divine from from just overhearing or or interacting with other people like. Yeah, there's this guy here, his name's John Locke. He says he comes from the future and stuff. The monster's got nothing to do but time. He doesn't, you know, have like a movie theater he can go to. He doesn't have a Netflix account. He's got nothing to do but just like plot and think about how the hell do I get off this island? So details like that, that, oh, there's a there's a self-professed time traveler in our midst, mm. uh, may ping on his radar as something to be interested in. So the arrival of the survivors of Oceanic 8115 uh, would be would be a huge event, right? Would be like a massive event of like a, oh my God, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening. It's like that Michael Scott gift from the, from the office <laughs> of like, okay, okay, it's happening, it's happening. Like the monster may just be so excited and so ready to start testing these people because it's been waiting for this moment. And that that great dialogue between the man in black and Jacob from back in the season five finale that we you know played at the start of this podcast series, 
uh, that we did we cut off before this moment where he says, I'm going to find a loophole someday. The monster may know as soon as the arrival of Oceanic 815 that that day has arrived, that the loophole is about to be broken. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. He could have sort of the John Locke unintentionally told him what he needed to do. And maybe that's another reason why he felt he could take advantage of John Locke is because he's someone who can easily give away information. He has loose orangey lips that he can take advantage of. Yes, the citrus scent. Uh, Let's get into other number 10. Uh, This is from Jess Sterling, and we started flirting with this idea uh, a little while ago. I wanted to save it for here. Much like Charlie on Shannon. Yes, yes. Uh, Jess had had written into us and said, how does Gary Troop getting sucked into the turbine, which then explodes, compare to some of the other epic deaths in the show? Um, And so we should give a little bit of background for the people who aren't so deep into Lost that they know who or what a Gary Troop is is uh it's not a troop of musicians from gary indiana though that would be great as well uh but gary troop is the author of bad twin uh, a book that in the world of lost is just an unpublished manuscript which we later see sawyer reading in season two in real life bad twin was published as a companion piece to lost uh we'll be checking in on that at other points in in down the hatch when there's some more relevant bits but just to give a couple of quick teases uh the book bad twin it's dedicated to gary's fiance uh who is cindy cindy the flight attendant apparently is gary's fiance uh in the in the world of of lost um but it gets we get the sense that like maybe it's not fully reciprocated so maybe gary troop getting sucked into the turbine. He's the guy who gets sucked into the turbine. Maybe we shouldn't feel so bad about that. Maybe maybe it was like kind of a good riddance sort of deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Cindy's very happy that she got separated from Gary in different parts of the plane. We'll leave it at that. So we'll talk about Gary more in later detail. But as to the question of where does Gary fit in the pantheon of lost deaths, uh, once again, to reference Lost Lives, which were these podcasts that we did Long ago in the post show recaps archives that you can go back and listen to, we talked, we did a countdown of the 23 best deaths on Lost. And spoiler alert, Gary Troop did indeed make the list that it's like the first really notable death of Lost. So you have to stand up and salute it. Uh, I will not spoil the placement, uh, but you can go and you can listen to that podcast. We'll link to it in the show notes. The Lost Live stuff is fun. I haven't revisited any of it uh, in in years, but if you're if you're jonesing for more Lost podcasting from Mike and I and, and other people in the post show recaps universe, you can go back and check that out. Yeah, resuscitate it, but don't breathe air directly into the stomach, or Jack will admonish you for it. He will admonish you for it. Uh, let's go to other number eleven, which I'm calling the Joe Garfine question. Uh, on the on the podcast that I did with Joe Garfine leading into this one, I asked her at the end of the conversation if she had anything to to send our way uh, for the pilot, any questions she wanted uh, to to ask us, and she said that we should be paying close attention to where Bernard was uh, during the flight and where Charlie was as well during the flight. Uh, and we had a question in from Jordan from Wisconsin who said, I'm confused by the mechanics of where Charlie was when the plane crashed. Can't remember if this is addressed later. Mike, Charlie is trying to go to the bathroom in the back of the plane. Um, but Bernard, whether he has to pee or whatever, he's in the bathroom. Or use his own heroin. Who knows what Bernard's got going on? But he's in the back of the plane, in the bathroom in the back where Charlie originally was trying to go. If Bernard had not gotten up 
to use the bathroom. Charlie would have been in the bathroom in the back of the plane. Ergo, Charlie could have been a tailie? Oh, I do. I fear for him there. I feel like Anna Lucia hard, is, uh, is hard not, to end worse. Than I mean, I don't know, but Charlie, but Anna Lucia is not nearly as forgiving of a leader as Jack is. I feel like when he gets up to those shenanigans, he's going in that hole that God that Goodwin went into, and he's just living there forever. Plus, uh, he you know he doesn't have Claire to fall in love with. I think it's an altogether worse outcome for Charlie. He also doesn't have his own heroic moment as well. So. Maybe Charlie, you know, becomes like many of the other tailies and just happens to get killed off somewhere over the course of season two or beginning of season three. But, uh, you know, he paint he uh, this is in the pilot. This is when he creates his uh, his famous fate little fingerlets that he puts on around his left hand. And I feel like it's true fate that he ended up going to the bathroom in the front of the plane instead of the back. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I mean, Charlie would have been able to hang out with Mr. Echo. Like maybe he would have been able to like have like a nice friendship moment with Mr. Echo. But then Charlie never would have found the heroin plane, and then Mr. Echo never would have found the heroin plane. So maybe Mr. Echo would have lived. Uh, I don't know. A lot of things. Uh, maybe Mr. Echo wouldn't have gone into DUI. So maybe he would have lived. <laughs> no, he's not part of that crowd. I think I think Adewale just wanted off the show. <laughs> it's like the one man who doesn't like Hawaii. Uh, all right. Other number 12. Flashing forward to the end. And I even hesitate to get into this. And I think let's just get into it quick. But just to establish it. Fire and Ice Cream. Uh, great great uh, participant in the feedback on Post Show Recaps. Uh, tweeted in and said, I'm an original show watcher back when we had to actually watch this on TV. It was it wasn't until a few years ago that I found out I completely misunderstood the ending. So my question is, this is actually all happening, right? Um, yes, it is. It absolutely is. For anybody else who is confused because the end of Lost uh, reveals that this sideways reality in the final season is some version of an afterlife. And people have died, and then they have this extra life after they die. Uh, and then there's like the over the closing credits, they showed... Uh, like the the ghostly haunted husk of Oceanic Eight Fifteen on the beach, and everyone's like, "See, I knew it! You're dead the whole time!" Yeah, it, they, they were not. We should have put this as one of like our point right after the spoilers. The island is not purgatory. It is not purgatory. It never was purgatory. Everything that we are going to see over the next, basically until the end of season five, every single thing has actually happened. I'll use in real time in quotations because, again, there's a lot of jumping around. It's only until we get into these flash sideways things in season six where we get into the more heady, I wouldn't say purgatory. It's more of a halfway home stuff in the sideways universe. But, yes, everything that happened on the island did happen. Whatever happened, happened. Absolutely. All right. So move on. From that other number 13, Ben Martell loads us up with some things that we may have missed in translation from the episode. Just some things that maybe we haven't even mentioned yet. One of them is that we get the first mention of the Black Rock in this episode. It's in French, so unless you're Shannon, maybe you miss it. Uh, but nice to get the Black Rock in as early as the first episode. Yeah, there's a uh, you, you referenced that piece from uh, our preview podcast, which is essentially a tell-all from one of the Lost writers from season one, who I'm sure will reference many times over the course of this podcast. But he has a really interesting story about how you know the Black Rock wasn't. A, I think it was just more so mentioned in the message and not really thought out. That was definitely one of those things where Damon Lindelof walked into the writers' room and said, "What's the Black Rock?" And one of the guys said, 
Uh, it's a it's a Spanish ship that crashed on the island back in the day, and he goes, "Great, we got it," and then leaves. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's definitely yeah. like more of a random reference thrown in there just for the sake of creating a mystery. But it is fun to see the breadcrumb here. Absolutely. Uh, ben also notes that due to the edit- editing, each iteration of Danielle's distress call sounded a little bit different. An approximate translation of the entire message, patching together what we hear of various iterations, is this. Uh, quote, if anybody can hear this, they are dead. Please help us. It is outside and Brendan took the keys. They are dead. It killed them. It killed them all. I'll try and make it to the Black Rock end quote uh and i do believe we meet brennan uh later on Mm -hmm. in lost in season five when we do flashback to see more of russo i also believe that brennan is the last name of kate austin's tom her childhood sweetheart uh but i assume no relation to the uh 1980s era french explorer brennan now now it all makes sense we know tom brennan had an obsession with a little toy plane kate falls for a wannabe toy maker she has a type Yes, I think so. think so. Uh, ben says, uh, we also hear Sun speak to Michael in Korean in this episode, and a translation of what she said is, I'm sorry, but I don't speak English, which foreshadows the future reveal to Michael that indeed she does. Except for that one English. episode when she got hit in the head and didn't. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a long time away, thankfully. <laughs> that's not something that's... Of the things that happened in the final season, it's not one of the things that holds up especially great for me, Uh, but we'll get there. Uh, Other number 14, Ben Martell is pointing us in the direction of some music analysis. Uh, Obviously, Michael Giacchino's score is just remarkable and the backbone of so much of Lost, and we really were not even able to really get into that in this, uh, you know, what's going to end up being a three-hour-plus podcast (laughs) here. Uh, I know. Again, we'll we'll tighten up. We'll tighten up. We'll tighten up, I swear. Just a smidge. I swear. I swear. We'll figure it out. Uh, But but points us in the direction of somebody who's doing really amazing work in terms of musical analysis of Lost that we want to point everybody in the direction of. If if you're a nerd for that kind of thing, if you want to get your extracurriculars on uh, as you're going back down the hatch, this is Jim Jim Fells is the name of this person who is in the midst of putting together a deep analysis of how the themes and motifs in the music of Lost are used to create the musical backdrop of the show. Each video that Jim is creating, it's about 10 to 15 minutes long, and it chooses some of the themes in the episode and then shows how those themes are varied and combined in other episodes to highlight particular characters, events, emotions, or themes. Uh, For people who love the music of the show and like to understand more about how deliberate and careful Giacchino's choices are, the videos are an absolute must-watch watch um as with this podcast though those videos they're full of spoilers for all six seasons uh so be warned uh but if you're this far you're already cool with it so you should be fine uh in this week's video you can you can find out which characters were the first to have their musical themes introduced on the show and uh surprise it's not who you think yeah who you think i highly recommend these uh he does a great job of sort of show showing the motifs that occur throughout all the different uh you know seasons uh especially you know you find out that a lot of these particular songs get introduced in the pilots recur a lot in varying epic capacities i think uh hollywood and vines for instance occurs basically in every season finale in some sort of way, shape, or form, they talk about the origin of the quote-unquote island theme, which we hear a lot as well and is used to symbolize bringing someone into the group or someone leaving the group. So 
you know, before I really got into TV, I'd never been one to really pay attention to musical scoring, but it's thanks to checking out the show again and the great work of someone like Jim Fells for me to really pay attention to what's going on in the background and how music really does influence the emotional quality of a scene. So uh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's it's definitely worth watching if you love the music of this show as much as we do. Um, so check the show notes and you can get linked to those YouTube videos. Uh, we've got two others in the others section uh, that I think are better for for basically end of podcast stuff. Uh, let's 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 save it for the end. I want to get into the into the MVP and the LVP of it all. This is our twenty three points section where, uh, as we said, this is basically just an excuse to further talk about some of the characters that delight or annoy us in a given episode. Uh, and each week we're gonna, we're gonna alternate. Uh, there's two MVP points that one of us will give out and three MVP points that the other will give out. And then two LVP points that one of us will give out and three LVP points that the other will give out. And we're gonna switch positions every single week, uh, just to, just to balance it out. This week I'm gonna give out two MVP points. Mike will give out three MVP points uh and you will give out mike you will give out two lvp points and i will give out three lvp points to talk about who are the most valuable and least valuable players on lost and mike i'll i'll turn the mic over to you and i'll also say if you want to combine any of your points if you just feel so passionately about one character and like you want to give vincent the dog all three of your mvp points i'm not necessarily mad at that well i would give it to vincent but then vincent would give it to charlie because it's such a big drive shaft fan <laughs> yeah it's true um it's, it's i mean so noble so people have a lot of consternation about jack as a character down the line but i gotta give my first mvp point to him uh and i will also say at the top here i think we can totally also give points to the same characters i don't think we need to think about like giving mvp points to five separate characters if it ends up being that great but I got to start off here with Jack. Uh, not only does he perform a pure feat of majesty by treating so many people in a crash and preventing so many of them from death as possible, but you know the way he was able to lead uh, Charlie and Kate to get that transceiver. The fact that he's not the, the, he hasn't given the big live together die alone speech yet, but he sort of has become the big de facto leader of the island. He's already fostering relationships with a lot of people, and I don't know about if you know this, Josh. He used to be able to fly planes. So I heard he gets, he gets my MVP yeah. point here. Yeah, okay, I like that. I think Jack is you know we 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 open on an eye. It's Jack's eye. Uh, we're we're really rooted in his perspective so through so much of this episode, um, and if not for feeling you know some kinship with him, I don't think we connect to Lost as deeply as we end up doing. And I think in that same vein, I'm I'm gonna give my first one to Kate, uh, who I know is is a character who is is not the favorite of many different people. I think along the line, we will hopefully uh, freshen that up. That is certainly one of my goals here is to do some image rehab for the great Kate Austin. A lot of this is because Evangeline Lilly is just so spectacular, um, but she's such a front and center character in this episode. The way that she thinks on her feet uh, in in that moment with the polar bear scene, uh, in, in hindsight, knowing more about her history... That's really, really fun. Uh, and you can, you can see, as we said already, like you can see the bones of the version of Lost where Jack died and Kate took on the leadership role. And it's a hard scenario to envision, but in that alternate universe where Evangeline Lilly is leading this show, and, and maybe she's getting better stories that are written for her uh, in the future than some of the stories that she ends up getting saddled with, uh, I think we would have been in great hands. So first point, 
goes to Kate. I'll co-sign. I'll give my second MVP point to Kate as well. Wow, Kate is the uh, is the first front runner here. Well, you got that's exciting. I, I think that uh, she showcased a lot of independence, and there was a really interesting recurring storyline between Jack and Kate in these first two episodes, where it's like. Kate wants to do something. Jack says, "No, don't do that. You'll get in, you'll be in danger." And she essentially says, "No, I can do this." He says, oh, "Okay, if that's the case then, you know, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And I think she's really showcasing like Sawyer said in that clip that we played, uh, you know, you think that you know who she is, but she is much more resilient than you think. She is much more level-headed. And she is much more of a leader, a quick thinker, as you said. So I, I'm surprised to say this, but it is a strong start for Miss Austin. And hopefully that continues into next week. Oh, my God. Well, next week is her flashback episode. So let's hope so. All right. I get uh, this is my second MVP, my, my second of two MVP awards that I can I can dish out this week. Give me the monster. Give me Ooh. the monster. It's a monster mash here in the pilot. Uh, the monster draws blood, Mike. The monster makes his move. The monster scares the crap out of every single person on the beach. All of the Oceanic Flight 815ers, uh, they're all freaked out by the the terrifying taxicab sounds emanating from deep within the jungle. Uh, the monster proves that it's not just a really cool, angry, primal beast mode voice. It also has the ability to turn a human into goo. It uh, does so very effectively to J.J. Abrams' childhood friend. Uh, and thank God it's not Frank Lapidus, because then I think I would have given the monster an LVP award. Uh, well, but La- also Lapidus VP. Yeah, I, I think for like a lot of the things that we talked about, about like you know the fan ficky type of stuff that you got to do with Lost when you when you think about it really hard after the fact, like if if that's like the kind of fun that you want to have with Lost, which is definitely the type of fun I like to have with a show like this. It just you know you get really creative and and in your own hat and and you know this very tinfoil hatty stuff with with Lost. I think a lot of the stuff that we were already talking about with the monster. Just makes me so excited about the future of the show. So having the monster have such a huge presence in this first episode, got to give him an MVP point. All right, I'm going to give my final one to Mr. Saeed Jarrah. I think that Saeed is a literal MVP in that he's the one who fixes the transceiver and is able to get a signal from it. But again, I feel like uh, his character has already started to buck the trend of maybe how he was perceived in the real world. I really like the turn where, again, you find out that this really, you know, nice level-headed guy is someone who, uh, you know, is part of the Republican Guard from Iraq. And we're going to find out more about that and how maybe he's a bit more reticent uh, from what we initially think with people who are attributed to that organization. But yeah, considering his involvement and how he essentially ran that second mission, I got to give it to Saeed here. All right, so now we're turning to LVP, and I've got three LVP points to award, and Mike, you have two. Uh, and I guess I'm going to give it to... Oh, man, it's hard. It's hard to do. There's the obvious pick. I assume you're going to do the obvious pick. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna hold off, and if you don't pick the obvious pick, then the obvious pick won't go, and I will be very surprised. Uh, the pilot dies, and the pilot crashed the plane, and I know it was really Desmond who's responsible, but give me Seth Norris. He's wow. no Frank Lapidus. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take a point away from Seth Norris right at the jump. I don't I don't uh, know I don't know if he has many opportunities to make up that point. He'll show up later on. I think that Seth Norris very likely is going to end his down the hatch run with a negative one. Would be my bet. All right, let's go for the obvious here. I'm going with Boone yeah, for my sure. first LVP. I think that. You know, Shannon had some redeeming moments. Again, she had the ability to translate most of the French message. But Boone, 
was sort of shown as somebody who, you know, Jack wanted to get rid of in an emergency situation. He was sort of abdicated the uh, the the substitute doctor position when Jack went to the cockpit, but otherwise, he sort of ended up being the worthless person this episode. And I know things are going to get a lot better for Boone as he goes under uh, John Locke's tutelage. Well, maybe not so much better, but at least from a from a worth worthiness perspective. But yeah, I think he's the one who comes off by far the worst of the main cast in this premiere. No, there's a lot of people who wrote in about Boone. And I, I actually thought it was kind of interesting how much we got feedback from people about Boone. And I anticipated he'd probably get the LVP, uh, at least one of our points. I think if, if you hadn't done it by your second one, I would have done it by the third anyway. Uh, even, even though I'll, I'll defend some aspects of the Boone character, definitely one of the LVPs of the episode. People wrote in, uh, Joe McNally wrote in, do Shannon and Boone get any better I don't remember that ever happening, but maybe I've just forgotten. Uh, Fitzy, Brendan Fitzpatrick, wrote and said, Watching the pilot the other night, I was shocked at the level of my dislike for him and my actual okayness with Shannon. She at least feels like she has some nuance because of her scene with Claire. Um, ben Martell wonders if casting Ian Summerhalder made Boone seem like he ought to be likable and capable when his actions don't really bear that out. Would Boone have worked better as a character and had more scope for redemption if he felt more believably from money and entitled and less buff? Um, I think that Ian Summerhalder plays entitled and from money pretty well, mm. personally. Um, and I, I think that one of the things that I I like about Boone as a character and his place in the greater lost mythos is, first of all, that he dies this season. Uh, so we don't have to think about him that hard and i think that what boone ultimately becomes is he's you know he's he's an avatar for the the fleeting nature of life and death on the island and in this show and i think that boone enters the universe of lost as somebody who believes himself to be the hero of his own story believes him himself to be um, you know, the leader of any room that he walks into um, and isn't like a, like a raging jerk about this kind of stuff. It's just the life that he was he was born into and the life that he is used to. It's the world that he is used to. And he quickly comes to realize due to the severity of the situation and the types of people that he's surrounded by that he, this guy who fancies himself an alpha type who usually takes charge of most of his situations, he, I've run my mom's wedding business. You know, like he's the person who thinks that he's the guy, quickly has to come to grips with the fact that, no, you are not the guy. You are surrounded by tons of people who are masters of their lives. Um, and I, I think the way that that wears on somebody like Boone yields some interesting drama for me. And I think that where he ultimately lands. Literally, as he falls <laughs> off, of the, off of the beach plane. I think in in connection to that arc, I think some powerful stuff comes from that. I think a lot of people don't like Boone as a character and yet still still feel fairly touched by his death. Yes, his, uh, his death think, scene is one of the highlights of season one, in my opinion. Because it's not only it's the death of Boone, it's the birth of Aaron. And I can't remember if Locke does the begging on the hatch with the light. No, it's before. It's before, it's before right? It's, before. it's just when yep. he gets, like, it's after the, the Beechcraft crash. But still, it's something linked with it. I'll also enter the second half of the equation. I think the post-Boon Shannon is really interesting. That's when she really starts to, you know, uh, you know, around Boone's death, that's when she starts to romance Saeed, which brings out a different part of her character. She has some redemptive moments in the beginning of season two before Anna Lucia guns her down in the jungle when she uh, th thinks she that she hears Walt. So to answer these questions, 
I think they do get better. I think these are, like Sawyer says, they have roles to play. They're just not very likable roles here in the pilot. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll give Shannon, you know, an LVP here just alongside Boone. Yeah, she she translates the French, but I think it's it, these two characters, especially with like the the greater cast that we are dealing with right now, they just don't pop the same way that everybody else does, uh, and that's fine. I think that I think that in a lot of ways, Boone and less so Shannon are. Um, are kind of like sentient red shirts, you know, like yeah. they're, they're, they're red shirts who are given more character and more meaning and more depth and more, more background sort of, um, they're like the pre Nikki and Paulo, right? Like there's yeah. a reason no, why it, they're featured as heavily in expose as they are really did get like hints of Nikki and Paulo. I mean, even, uh, you know, until we had them merge with Sawyer and Saeed and Kate in the second episode, they were really off by themselves. And it really felt like they were sort of making commentary onto the scene in not necessarily a likable way. So maybe that just inspired them to do it all over again in expose. All right, Mike, your last LVP award. Hand it out. The man who shares my namesake, give me Michael. Mainly, oh, man. He's just trying to be a dad, man. But it's mainly for one scene where Walt's reading the comic books, and Michael says, when we get off the island, we're going to get you a new dog. This is not the time nor the place to bring that up, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, dude? <laughs> So that for that reason and literally right. that reason alone, he gets my LVP point. Fair enough. And literally for the reason that he is a, a racist jackass, uh, Sawyer will get an LVP. But he's, uh, but he's co- a complex man. He's a complex guy, sweetheart. But I think Sawyer will, uh, he will not, much like Seth Norris, unlike Seth Norris, he will rise above his initial negative one start. I think Sawyer has a, a very promising future here on Down the Hatch. But just as we're starting out, uh, I think uh, he's got to land where he lands here. Um, all right, so just to reset that for people who want to be keeping track, we will be keeping track of this all series long. The MVPs from the pilot with plus one apiece, Jack Shepard, Kate Austin. Kate gets a second one, so she is in the lead with two MVP points. The monster gets an MVP point, and Saeed gets one as well. So two for Kate, one for Jack, one for the monster, one for Saeed. And then for the LVPs, uh, the, the, the sad clown pilot, Seth Norris, is getting a negative one. Boone and Shannon, both a negative one. Michael, a negative one. And Sawyer, a negative one as well, before he inevitably gets to plus 108. Um Let's start wrapping things up. Oh, we had two oh o- so soon? <laughs> I know, I know. We had two other others to get to. Uh, we had Jordan from Wisconsin who wanted to see what we were thinking about the frozen donkey wheel. Uh, we mentioned in our first podcast that if we go over 108 minutes on a regular podcast, <laughs> not on a we're, multi-part podcast. We're nearing podcast. twice that amount of time right now, just so you know. Yes, yes. We'll talk offline about it, Mike. We'll strategize. Uh, for if, we, if, we, if we go past the 108 minutes, we trigger a crisis, and bonus podcasts of Down the Hatch shall be uh, prepped and recorded and released into the wild. Uh, I think that the specifics of how those podcasts will be created and released, I think will depend upon the podcast that we're talking about. Um, I don't think that it can be as simple as like we trigger a crisis and then you get the bonus the very next week. I think it's totally going to depend on the bonus that we land on. But the way this will work is we're going to, we're going to come up with a, we're, we're totally ripping off Robin Akiva need a podcast on RHAP. 
We're taking their wheel. We're putting it in the freezer. We're taking it out. And we've got a frozen donkey wheel that's got some options for bonus loss podcasts on it. Um, and we've taught, we, we've got some, we've got some ideas for what should be on there. We'll throw some of them out right now. And then you can write into us on the feedback. We'd like to lock this in by the end of next week's podcast, just in case, yeah. just in case we trigger another one. If we trigger one about the, the first Kate flashback, that's a huge, we're that's screwed. a huge problem. We are huge so problem. screwed, but yeah, we have, we'll take, we'll take it all back at that um, point. So a few that we have in mind. So obviously survivor lost is going to happen. It's something that has been asked of the RHEP community at large for the longest time. The idea of doing a survivor simulation featuring characters from Lost using the Brant Steel algorithm. Uh, Josh and I have done it many a time for both Survivor proper, and we did it recently with Stranger Things. Uh, on that note, with other Stranger Things podcasts, Josh and I did some RPG, some role-playing stuff in the realm of Stranger Things. I think given the success of that, it's likely that we would bring our good friend R. Philly back to do some role-playing within the Lost universe as well. Yeah, I think so. That would be really fun. I, I think that the Survivor Lost thing, I'm almost tempted not to even put it on the Frozen Donkey Wheel because of how inevitable it is. Right. Like, I, I think that I think we're going to do it. I think it's a matter of when. Uh, we're just going to we're going to do it. We may do it soon. Who knows? Uh, you, you may want to you may want to keep uh, tabs on on our plans uh, for for a Survivor Lost simulation. That I don't think that we even need to put it on the Frozen Donkey Wheel. But I think some Lost RPG. Where Mike and I, at the at the whim of our good friend R. Philly, we are uh, inhabiting the roles of people on the island, playing the parts of red shirts uh, for uh, basically some some podcast improv theater. Sounds like a pretty fun time here on Poster Recap. So I like that for the wheel. Um, the Lost Book Club uh, is one that I've seen mentioned. I like that idea. Whether it's we're reading a book that is stemming from Lost. Uh, and doing like some sort of book report on it, like how ridiculous is Bad Twin actually? Like that could be what that podcast is. Um, we've talked about the Lindelof, which is going to be a song parody competition uh, that is much like the Wandoff that we do on RHAP. Uh, but that's a great example of if we trigger the Lindelof, if we land on the Lindelof as the first. Uh, bonus podcast like we can't just unleash that the next week we can't yeah. unleash it until we get the right volume and the right selection of songs from people so that'll really depend on user-generated feedback yeah some other stuff uh you know we mentioned all of the lost alum starring shows that have come and gone so i think there's definitely something in there about some sort of recap of like an old series premiere whether it be Alcatraz, Flash Forward, V, Person of Interest, or even adjacent our apparent next deep dive, Josh, in 2022, Alias, uh, yes. <laughs> would, would be fun to touch upon. In addition, we were thinking about maybe touching upon some other like miscellaneous lost uh, you know, content. We were talking about the, the missing pieces before the webisodes. There was also a lost video game. There was a lost board game. There were lost trading cards. So I'm sure we could do something as well with those various pieces of memorabilia. I had an idea for something that I have called uh, Adventure. Uh, and an adventure would be Mike, like you and I doing very safe versions of things that happen on Lost, and recording ourselves doing them, and then reporting those results back in the form of a bonus podcast. So much like how the Losties create a golf course, I was thinking like you and I could go golfing 
and we could record our golfing expedition and cut it together in the form of a podcast. Mm. Uh, we could uh, we could do something like a, uh, like a, a polar bear swim. Oh boy, we go. We could we could do some sort of like early morning swim activity that is absolutely horrible, and we can report back on the results of that. Uh, I like the idea of of you and I having to pull uh, a Charlie and Hurley with baby Aaron, where we could babysit. Perhaps even uh, baby Asher, if if I'm allowed into your home, I don't oh, know you, that I am. You gladly are, absolutely. I think that there could be some fun adventure podcasts to do if people have good ideas for that. So yeah, this is just the base level of what we've set up. If you have any ideas, be sure to send them in. Much like Robin and Kibanita podcast, we function well off of listener submissions in so many ways. So if any Lost-inspired ideas for bonus podcasts come your way, be sure to send them in, because given the runtime of this podcast, we might be hitting that crisis button sooner rather than later. I expect that we probably will. Uh, Very, very likely we're going to be in that crisis mode before too long. So let us know what you think. We will we'll aim to, to firm up the frozen donkey wheel by the end of episode two, our next uh, recap. But uh, if not, we'll just we'll, we'll get it sturdy and, and set once it is in the proper condition. Uh, final other. Let's talk about episode rankings. Jess Sterling had said, uh, Josh, you mentioned season six being much better on a rewatch. Will you be updating your episode rankings uh and mike i feel like we should rank the episodes as we go right like doesn't that no. seem like something we should be doing here on down the hatch i am hopeful that my memory retains so much that when we're in like season five and we're like okay how does this rank against whatever the case may be that i'll have it you know crystal clear in my memory it's pretty easy right now but i think it's an admirable thing that we should try doing considering that you know we are approaching this from a very different angle it only makes sense that we try to compare loss against itself I've done episode rankings before. Uh, my current and most recent official episode rankings uh, have been published on MTV.com. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes. I don't know how much I stand behind those episode rankings anymore. As I have said before, my feelings on Lost change after every watch through. Uh, so it's a flexible document and it may be totally different if we do it here along the way on Down the Hatch. But I think, I think it'd be fun, especially uh, on the, on the week's where maybe we aren't going quite as long-winded as we are here. It'll give us something to debate and something to talk about. I think the deeper we get into the show, uh, it could it could lead to some some fun conversation. But it's going to be very hard this week to rank the pilot, mm. right? Mm. Where does it land? Where does it land? Uh, you know what? This might be being a, me being a bit renegade, a bit cavalier. I'm going to say number one. Yeah, I think it's number one. All right. I think it's number one. Good, good, good call. I think it's number one. I think the pilot is number one. Is the pilot the best episode of Lost? Is a take... That some people have. Do you think that the that the pilot is is going to be number one all the way through? Knowing the two of us, no. Um, I think that it might be, as I said before, the best pilot I've ever seen. I think the issue is, like we mentioned before, it does an interesting job of introducing these characters, but unfortunately, it doesn't provide us with like the fully complicated arcs that we're going to discover with this cast. I think that's why I'm personally more of a fan of an episode like Exodus is because it sort of has all the stuff from the first season in terms of spectacle, comedy, drama, twists, memorable TV moments, but also a lot of character richness. Now that we've gotten to know these characters for 23 episodes, there's a lot of payoff that happens emotionally that we don't necessarily get in the pilot. So while the pilot is a very good episode, I will spoil our rankings by the end of season uh, season one and say at least Exodus is a better episode in my opinion. 
Yeah, I think it it's tough because this show arrives in a way that is just so impressive to me. Absolutely. Um, that it's it's it, it does it 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 crash lands in the most spectacular way and and this episode really is the reason why we've got a podcast about lost uh you know 15 years on from this episode right like you know there's there's a reason why uh we've been drawn back to the island and so much of it stems from the godhead that is the two part pilot um but i think that a lot of the things that are so impressive about this episode are done better elsewhere. And so I think for legacy reasons, I will be surprised if the pilot ever drops below the top 10. Mm, um, I agree. But I, I don't think it'll stay in the in the number one spot. Um, I could see it staying in the top five, baby. Uh, I would be shocked if it left the top 10. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. For now, for now it's number one. For now, it it's is number one. sitting in a tree... Yeah, Definitely on not, its own. <laughs> not as mangled as poor LVP Seth Norris, but in a comfortable spot. In a comfortable spot, indeed. All right, Mike. There we go. We did it. We talked about the two-part pilot, and it took us... Uh, and we nearly <laughs> enveloped the time of Avengers Endgame in talking about it. We've done we've done our duty. Hopefully, I know that it was a long wait between the announcement podcast and the release of the recap podcast for this first episode of Lost. Hopefully, it was worth the wait. Hopefully, we will not be anywhere in the vicinity of this long for the single episode recaps that we've got going on. Maybe some people out there would be happy if we were. Uh, I think Mike and I would feel like we have embarked on something way too dangerous and out of control for ourselves. So we will have to make very drastic changes if this becomes the norm. Uh, but I do not think it will be the norm. Next week, we are talking about the Kate Austin flashback episode, the first character-centric flashback episode of Lost, which I've always pronounced as Tabula Rasa, but you've been saying Tabula Rasa, and I don't know if that's just because you're so fond of the word Bula from our trip to Fiji. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, so, I'm still so close to Fiji, much like the island, that I, I, I'm just approaching it naturally like that. But I am excited. I mean, it's, it's always going to be tough to say, where does Lost go from here? You know, are they able to, in a manner of speaking, land the plane? after the pilot, or is it going to crash? But the concept of Tabula Rasa or Tabula Rasa is so interesting to me, especially because it is connected to the philosopher, John Locke, uh, which is a little surprising. I think a lot of people look at this episode and think because of that reason, it's the it's the Locke episode, but that's the very next one. But uh, it's focusing more on Kate. We had this big uh, cliffhanger, you know, uh, the floor dropped out from under us when we found out that she is not what she seems she is a hardened criminal and we're gonna find out a bit more about why that is and we'll find out much much more about why that is in the years to come absolutely all right we want your feedback your comments your questions about that episode please send them our way we are having a great time interacting with you guys on this podcast so please send us an email down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com that is by far and away the best way to send in your feedback down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com our email address but you can also tweet at us at postshowrecaps is our main show twitter account i'm at round howard you can tweet at mike at a mike bloom type subscribe to down the hatch now that we have our podcast feed up search for lost down the hatch on your podcast app of choice we would be so grateful for your ratings and reviews as we are are striving to be discovered here in the ocean the vast ocean of content that is out here as we're talking about a show 
That is so old. Do not take our boy, but please leave some ratings and reviews. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, Mike Bloom, anything else before we close this one? <laughs> no, we have expanded on every single word I think can be said about the Lost Pilot. But that being said, if you guys have any thoughts about our thoughts on the pilot, you know we're always happy to talk about it with our Twitter fingers uh, You know, over the course of the podcast, etc. But... This has, even after nearly three and a half hours, Josh, I'm so energized getting to talk about this show, and I cannot wait to do it with you in perpetuity. Oh, my God. Well, here we go. Done with the pilot. On to the next one. Until next week, everybody, take care. Four, eight, 